This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 345 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Jeff Thompson. Now, I was originally exposed to Jeff's work in my teens when he was writing about his time as a bouncer. As a lifelong martial arts, what he found worked on the pavement arena, as he put it, and what didn't work. But when I connected with him recently, I realized that he'd been through this incredibly powerful journey, addressing some of the childhood abuse that he'd endured, and then his mental journey through violence, and then out the other side to the incredibly philosophical place that he finds himself now. So I urge you to listen to this conversation from beginning to end. There will be so many takeaways for you. Before we get to that interview, as I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating makes us more and more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. And this podcast is a free library for anyone on planet Earth to be used individually, to be used within an organization. All I ask in return is that you help share these incredible episodes. Jeff's, for example, needs to be heard by every single person on planet Earth, and you are the medium to help me make that happen. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jeff Thompson. Enjoy. Jeff, I want to start by saying thank you so, so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. The pleasure. My pleasure. Right. Where are we finding you on planet Earth today? 
At the moment, I'm in Coventry, England. Okay, in well, Coventry, England, the secret location. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good good segue because my first question and my first main question is always about you know, where you were born. So, where exactly were you born? And then um, tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many brothers and sisters. I was born in Coventry. Uh, I was born in a place called Tile Hill. Moved quickly to a place called Warsgrave. And I spent the next 17 years years there. Got married very young, uh, just 18, a couple of months after the eight, my 18th birthday. Started a family really young. Um, my mum is Irish Catholic, um, so she's beautiful. She's amazing. Um, but like most Irish Catholics, you know, uh, she's weaned on uh, guilt and shame, and certainly not bringing shame to the door. But fierce mother, I love her. I love her very bones. My dad's a Coventry guy. Um, I've got uh, three brothers um, and a sister. But two, my my um, two brothers and a sister. My my brother and my sister are both dead, though. Both of my brother and my sister died from alcoholism. So very, my brother died at forty-two, um, and my sister died at uh, about three well, about three months ago. She was fifty-two. She fifty-two, fifty-four. So two tragic deaths. Uh, and, you know, if you know England or if you know Coventry, it's an industrial city. Uh, so we were brought up in and around working men's clubs. Alcohol wasn't only accepted, it was expected. You drank. You know, we were, we were Friday people. We worked all, we worked very hard all week and we, uh, you know, we got wired at the weekend. And then we sat with our beer, looking into the jug, talking about the things we were going to do, the dreams that we were going to fulfill. And they were all fantastical. They were all based on the, you know, on writing a hip hop record or, uh, you know, selling, uh, you know, um, three, a three, getting a three deal book, you know, six figures or seven figures. It was all really fantastical things because none of us really were very educated and we didn't really understand what success was or what it demanded. We only knew our very, um, small boundaries and outside of that you know at the edge of it on the periphery of it was a terror barrier and beyond that we didn't know what was there so if you'd have asked us what success looked like what it meant and what what we needed to do we wouldn't have been able to tell you other than when we sat around especially my brother and my dad and me we would sit around and have these animated conversations about the, how we were going to make it how we were going to find something um but eventually that used to really depress me because I knew it, I knew it did, I knew it wore off after the beer wore off. The next day it was forgotten about and it really depressed me. So in the end, I couldn't have that conversation. Um, this created a lot of depression in my life, as you can imagine. Massive creative urge, nowhere to place it. Um, so that was, that made me quite root bound, uh, triggered lots of depressions. Later, one of the depressions acted as a catalyst for me to go out in the world and find out what success was, confront my fears, stand in front of my demons, embrace the leper, all of those things, you know. Look beyond the rabid, look beyond the rabid dog that was at the periphery of our reality and try and see the Buddha. So it's a kind of a working class family, um, educated enough to get as menial jobs, but not beyond. And not educated in what that meant, not knowing really. I can remember James doing three jobs, um, and that was the only one I knew how to make more money. Um, and it was still menial money. I didn't know how to make 
I didn't know how some people were earning a lot more than me. I didn't understand that. The, the university cr- question had never, ever been mentioned. The university was never, ever mentioned in our house or in our school. And we didn't know how to make more money. I didn't understand that it was simply a matter of educating yourself and making yourself more valuable in the workplace. So um, this is something I had to learn later on once I uh, decided to uh, go on, go into the, the greater jihad, the inner war, the battle with myself. This is when I started my fear pyramid a little bit later. Yeah, there's, there's so much to unpack in your stories. I'd love to just kind of start with your initial journey into martial arts. I know it's going to lead to a, a rather horrendous moment with one of your instructors, but, but what, what even made you step into a dojo for the first time? Depression, even as a young guy, uh, even at the age of, I suppose, up until the age of 11 in junior school, I was God. In my school, I was a, I was a God, and everybody knew I was. I knew I was, and everybody else knew I was. I was a goalkeeper for the school team. The prettiest girls liked me. Um, they would stand me up in assembly and congratulate me on, on, you know, how I played at the weekend with the football match. Um, and then when I went to the big school, thinking I'm going to be recognised as a god there as well, uh, I was not a god. I was just uh, um, a minnow in this great ocean of other minnows from other schools. So all the schools from around the districts converged into this one playground at the same time, and I was overwhelmed, absolutely unprepared and overwhelmed. That was the beginning of, uh, I guess, this sense of um, depression or this sense of melancholy or this sense of just being completely out of my depth. Um, I started the martial arts uh, to try and rescue myself, I suppose, to try and get, you know, to whatever these feelings were. And I used to go into the chapel, interestingly. They had a chapel at the school. It was a Catholic school. I used to go and pray and beg God to take these feelings out of me. I was led towards martial arts. Um, Aikido initially, we didn't really know the difference between all the different martial arts. I went to Aikido. Um and I was a star pupil that I was doing really well. Um, and the teacher who I idolized uh, groomed me. I didn't realize I was being groomed, of course you don't. And then one night when I was in my, when I was, I suppose I was in my, in my 11th year or I was 11 or 12, him and another guy sexually assaulted me. It wasn't the sexual assault itself that trauma, that did traumatize me, but it wasn't that. It was, you know, the next day when I woke up and I was a hundred years old and I knew my life had changed. And I said to him, uh, he said to me, oh, you know, you okay? I was saying, you know, we were talking, we were the only people in this boys club at the time, everyone else had gone home. And I just said, somebody was touching me in the night. And he goes, ah, oh, it's probably just your imagination. Like I'd imagined it, you know, so that's part of the groove. And he was laughing. And when I started crying and said, no, somebody was touching me, I, I can remember how overwhelmed I felt by these feelings, like I was invaded, like there was a parasite in me that I knew I couldn't get out on my own. And then he suddenly looked very, very scared. And then he took me for a walk, and uh, by the time I come back, the other guy had disappeared, never seen him again. And then he convinced me over the next hour not to tell my parents. He didn't need to convince me, James. I wasn't going to tell them anyway. I was so terrified so frightened of bringing shame to my mom's door. I loved my mom more than anything else, and I, didn't, I felt like it would bring trouble to her door, and I didn't want to do that. So I buried it 
I kept it inside me and part of me uh, obviously couldn't cope and I'm at some level I must have abandoned myself because a new persona took over and uh, I went out into the world with this parasite in me and then over the next I don't know over the next 40 years every decision I made every decision I made was influenced by that one night because uh, you know obviously when when you when a cause creates an effect, the effect becomes a cause itself. So I've got this damaged perception now, this damaged cognition, this damaged belief that the world can't be trusted. Nobody can be trusted. Not even the people you love, especially the people you love. They can't be trusted. You can't trust anybody. I idolized this teacher. Um, and, and the assault was so unexpected and so it created such a cognitive dissonance, I just didn't know how to get out of it. So I didn't tell my parents for a long, long time. And when I did tell them, they didn't know how to deal with it. They had no idea about how to deal with it. You know, they didn't know what to do. You know, so I was met with, um, I guess I was met with, coldness is the wrong word, because uh, my parents aren't cold, but, but I wasn't met with a hug. I wasn't met with an embrace. I wasn't... I think that parasite could have been taken out of me immediately if someone had said, don't you worry about this, you're 11 years old, you've done nothing wrong, we will sort this out. And because it wasn't, and it was brushed under the carpet and it wasn't spoken about, and to be honest, at the time I was grateful for it because I was so afraid. I didn't want any, I didn't want, um, any attention at all. I didn't want anything. So I just buried it and moved on. But then, of course, this parasite, when, when somebody... And when I say the word parasite, I'm not talking in, in, in derogatory terms about the person that abused me. I'm talking about a literal parasite. Somebody, some, when somebody abuses you, they take something from you. They take a light. They take a spark. They take an innocence. And they replace it. They replace it with a belief or with a, a damaged perception, a cognition. So then over time and space, they feed from that. Even if they're not there, even if they're dead, every time I thought about this person, I would get overwhelming rushes of adrenaline, fear. I'd be kissing a girl in the field. You know, I was 12. I was starting to court. And her face would morph into the face of him, you know, um, bristles and all. Because this, this guy was a big guy. He was a, he was a lump of a man. And it, they would morph. I mean, I'm not talking, you know, I'm not talking like metaphorically. It literally would morph and I'd be, I'd recoil, I'd be terrified. I also started to be invaded by, um, unwanted thoughts, unwanted rushes of sexual arousal, sexual passion, wild fantasies involving him, involving all sorts of things that weren't mine. They would just rush me and take over my body. I couldn't even trust my own hands in the dark. So I physically abused myself. I sexually abused myself. Now, it took me a long time to talk about that. I didn't talk about that till I wrote my first play about it. I wrote a play called Fragile. Uh, well, I think I was about 40. And because these, these, uh, this, the shame that happened, the shame that came to me from this abuse. Uh, used to blackmail me. If people knew what you did, if people knew who you were, if people knew what you did in the dark, if people knew what your thoughts were, you must have led this guy on. You must, you must have asked for this because you don't have these thoughts for nothing. I didn't understand 
the psychology of all this. I didn't understand that these are quite normal feelings for someone that's been sexually abused. Um, so I just thought it was all me. When I decided to bring that to light and write this play, that was the first time I talked about it. So my parents didn't know, my first wife didn't know, my second wife didn't know. So I was living two lives. One was this normal family man, very loving parent, um, and another was this person that abused himself in the dark. And then afterwards would be racked with guilt and shame because I'm thinking, why did I do that? Why did I have these thoughts? But of course, I, I realized when I went into a deep, uh, rigorous um, examination of this, a study of it, I realized that uh, this was the damaged cognition and this was him or this parasite feeding off me from a distance. So the way I stopped it from feeding was I brought it out into the open. I wrote about it. I talked about it. Of course, I stopped doing the things that I was doing. That wasn't easy because it become uh, this this parasite had become so so much a part of me that I didn't have any control of it. Well, it wasn't even my hand. It wasn't even me. I just had no control of it. So I had to. I, when I woke up and saw this, this would be my first experience of uh, being awoke. Um, I recognized that I was unique, I was a soul, but I did not have control of my body. And I had to win that back. And that took me some years. And a part of doing that was writing about it. Um, many years later, forgive me if I'm jumping forward, but many years later I was able to get the opportunity to meet this person and take back what he'd stolen from me and give him back what he'd planted in me. Both, but we can talk about that in a little bit because I know I've jumped forward about 30 or 40 years. So my, my although on the face of it, this was a very uh, traumatic and life-altering and debilitating situation, it led me on to uh, learning. It led me on, I'm very didactic, it led me on to this journey of self-education, self-knowing. It took me into higher levels of martial arts. It took me into Budo, took me into study of psychology, physiology, sociology, took me eventually into the study of metaphysics. And it was only when I got to the metaphysics that I started to see, ah, yeah, I get this. I haven't got sovereignty of my body. This guy stole it when I was 11. I can get it back, but I'm not going to get it back by battering him. I'm not going to get it back by kicking the shit out of him. Because that just feeds the parasite and it just feeds him. It feeds the darkness that he's planted in me. I needed a higher level of offence. And that higher level of offence was uh, forgiveness. As in, I recognised what it was and I gave it over. I looked at reciprocity. I looked at karma, causation. And I recognised that if this, if I was able to find a level of um, compassion or a level of um, understanding of law, of reciprocity, I would be able to meet this person and give it, give it back to him, give back to him the darkness he'd taken, uh, that he'd given me and, and take, off, take back the, the, um, the light that he'd stolen. That's exactly what I did. When I met him, I forgave him, but not in the sense that I let him off, in the sense that I gave him back to the law, I gave him back to karma. So when, when people, people have an idea that I was, it was a soft option, but um, 
if people understood forgiveness, they would be very afraid if I forgave them because it means I'm giving them back. I'm giving them over to this, you know, this universal law that will level its own books. And, it, and in the Old Testament they, and the New Testament, they would call this hot coals. When you forgive somebody, it's like heaping hot coals on their head. So in other words, what they've given you, the darkness they've given you, you're giving them back and then you're taking the light off them. This guy, this guy um, fell apart when I forgave him and some years later he committed suicide. Um, he went down and I continued to ascend. I went up um, and I'm continuing to ascend because I forgive everybody, even preemptively. I will refuse to hold a grudge. I refuse to even believe that it's possible for me to forgive. I haven't got that power. It's not a human attribute. It's a divine attribute. Uh, I haven't got the ability to forgive, but I've got the ability to give it over. I haven't got the ability to pardon. That's not in, within my power. That's a universal precedent. But I have got the, the ability to repent because I've made so many mistakes myself. And repentance to me is about returning back to homeostasis. It's about returning back to balance. So I've learned if this thing hadn't have happened to me when I was 11, I wouldn't have gone on this journey and I wouldn't have learned the things I've learned. I wouldn't be the, the awake person I am today. I wouldn't be the receptacle I am today. So I know it's quite common for people to say, I'm grateful that it happened, but I am grateful that it happened. I would never want it to happen to me again. It was uh, so traumatic. And I've been on my knees many times in my life because of all the associated emotions, you know, shame, guilt, cognitive dissonance, um, you know, uh, rage. You know, as you know, James, I became one of the things I did in order to overcome my fears was become a bouncer. Um, and I battered a lot of people. I mean, I literally destroyed people. I didn't realize that these people I was destroying were all projections from my own damaged cognition. They were all from, they, all, they were all projections, three dimensional projections from uh, damaged beliefs. So I was creating monsters in my imagination. They were manifested in front of me. Then I was developing tools to batter them. And that was just adding to the parasite. It made the parasite strong, made it muscular, it made it dangerous. But that 11-year-old kid was still in there, still afraid, still terrified. And the only way I was able to get that back was when I eschewed violence and started to find a higher level of play, which is, as you know, as a martial artist, is the Budo. Absolutely. Well, just going back to what you were saying as a young boy, because I've heard this over and over and over again, I was literally t completely taken by surprise how many of the people that I had on the podcast, when they talked about their childhood, there was trauma. There was one of my good friends who basically was about to take his own life if his last attempt at um, alcohol rehab didn't work, was abused as a young man. One of my, my other friends, she was abused by a neighbor. And I mean, the, the, the faces... Our family members, friends, you know, martial arts instructors, whatever it is. Yeah. But it's so, so frequent. And one of the most heartbreaking elements to that is, is the event itself, but also the inability to tell the parent. So, yeah. and you talked about, you know, the, your mom's specific faith that was Catholic. There was the guilt and the shame. What would you say to everyone listening now as a parent to be able to create an environment for their children 
to be able to reach out because we can't watch them 24-7 and it's the parents' worst nightmare that something like that would happen. Well, what I used to do with my own kids was I just, I said, I want to be, a, I want to be the kind of parent that they can call up at four in the morning if they're in trouble. I want them to know that they can come and call me. They can come to me. I'm not, I'm not going to say, don't bring Shane to my door. So you've got to keep, you've got to be open. You've got to, you've, you've not got to preload them with, with uh, loads of caveats about what I don't, I don't want you getting in trouble. You know, I don't want you bringing Shane to the door. You know, I don't want you, you know, all of these stipulations we have with our kids um we've got to we've got to not do that because the kid will get into a car crash or get into an accident or get in trouble with the police um and they won't come to us because we've we've already told them when they're kids that they shouldn't come to us they shouldn't bring any trouble to the door because you'll be ashamed or you'll be angry or so all of my kids at one point or another have come to me when they've been in you know in deep trouble and they've all turned up because they know i won't judge them so we've got to, they've got to know that if they come to us and they've done the worst thing, we will not judge them. We will be there. We'll stand by their side. They need to know there's someone that won't judge them. So what we have to ask ourselves now is, do I judge my kids? You know, will I judge my kids? Is there a limitation? You know, do I judge my friends? What am I teaching my kids? If I'm judging my friends and gossiping about my friends, about what they've done right and wrong, my kids are going to hear that. I'm going to teach them. Don't come to me with your troubles because I'm, I'm judging my friends. I'm going to judge you as well. You know, um, there's no limits. No matter what my kids did, I would be there for them. Uh, my son got into some trouble a few years ago and someone said, I don't know how you could forgive him. I said, it's nothing to do with me. It's not for me to forgive him. It's for me to love him and not judge him. Yeah, but what if he'd done something even worse? It's nothing, it's nothing to do with what they do. He's my child. You know, and if he comes to me, I'm going to be there for him. And he, know, he knows he can come to me, same as my girls do, because I won't judge them. How can I judge them with all the things I've done wrong? So we've got to, they've got to know they can come to our house and not be judged, even if they stole a million pounds, even if they you know, killed somebody. They've got to know that they can, they're going to get the truth from us, but they're not going to get judgment. So I think that's really important. From my own experience, I recognize that there is a chance to get this parasite out of out of people and kids if you can catch it very early if mine had been caught at the time it had happened and you know and i've had, and had people around me that understood what had happened that all of that guilt and that shame and that self-blame could have been stopped immediately could have been taken out of me while it was still implanting itself as it was it buried itself deep and it grew in the dark and then it became a secret, and we're only as sick as our secrets. So I did become a very out of balance, sick person. I, you know, a lot of people admire me because I was a bouncer. I don't admire me. I was violent. I stamped on people's heads. I kicked the teeth clean out of their face. These people had parents. These people had family. These people had kids. It was, it was not a good thing they did. The only thing in my defense was that I felt I was doing the right thing, but I wasn't. You know, I was. I was the creator of my own problems and, and I was trying to solve the problems I'd created and forgot, for, forgotten I'd created. So, you know, while we're still using violence to problem solve, we're not problem solving, we're just um, adding violence to violence. We're just feeding the parasite that's in us and we're feeding the parasite that feeds off us. So uh, I would just say, you know, just let them see that you're not going to judge them if they make a mistake bring them up and let them know that if they're in trouble, 
that you will be there for them and you'll help them no matter what anybody else says you will be there for them and you've got to prove that in your everyday life you, they've got to they've got to see the proof that you'll do that for them and then if something does happen um you know it should be met with no blame no scrutiny i you know and it should be met with love and hugs and embraces and it should be met with security you should be immediately pulled into a secure place i felt none of those things you know i felt like i'd been abandoned by my parents i felt and this isn't true but this is how i felt and because i couldn't communicate it that became my truth i felt i'd been abandoned by god i'd been brought up with god where the fuck was he excuse me i should it might, i shouldn't swear really sorry no you uh, but, you're more than more than able to on this show is that okay that's fine yes. okay but where in my head where was he i was so angry at god when i wrote my play when i was 40 and we, we staged it at the Belgrade theater in coventry my character was raging at the sky and eventually i was able to confront god and say to him uh well he said to me you think i abandoned you and i said yeah I, I do think you abandoned me he said i didn't abandon you but did you abandon you and of course i realized i did i abandoned myself every single day from the time that happened you know i abandoned myself um, i abandoned other people so the abuse that was given to me i was completely blind but i ended up going out and being violent to lots of people because of it as a this as an unconscious displacement activity when i fully understood what god was or uh, or um you know this omniscient omnipotent omnipresent being when i recognized what it was i recognized the folly of abandonment I can no longer be abandoned i can no sooner be abandoned by god as then i can be abandoned you know uh like a fish can be abandoned by water i understand it to the level now that that isn't in the equation this force is the backboard to everything it is the source of everything all i need to do is connect to it but of course the parasite that was in me the damage that was in me wanted to take me everywhere other than consciousness everywhere other than spirituality anywhere other than god he didn't want me to sit in that place because it knew the moment i turned into consciousness it would be um annihilated it would not exist it would have no existence at all because it's not real but we know we both know we've both seen perception kills perception talks people into killing talks people into killing themselves belief kills it talks people into killing other people belief talks talks people into killing themselves you know we know that cognition is a real thing it creates this conceptualization and the conceptualization creates form and the form creates aspect and if that conceptualization is um of violence then the for then the form and the aspect is of violence and then we start to create violent karma in the, in the world i said to my wife once isn't coventry violent everywhere i go there's violence and she said jeff there's a common denominator it's everywhere you go so powerful our ability to create in the world for good or for bad is so powerful so i've learned over the years to bring myself back to a neutral place i've recognized that reality exists at the level of engagement if i don't engage a conceptualization if i don't engage a semi-autonomous roaming thought form if i don't engage anger if i don't engage rage if i don't engage judgment it has no life 
But to do that, you've got to wake up. You've got to know who you are. You've got to be able to connect who you are. And you've got to make that, that authentic self the center of your being. So you're the one at the doorway of the heart. You're the one that's saying yay or nay. Otherwise, we're just going to be invaded by thoughts 24 hours a day that we think are ours. They're not ours. All thoughts come from the outside. They don't come from in us. They come from outside. And we choose to give them life when we engage them or identify them, identify with them. So I would never have learned this stuff. I would never have learned how to create the books and the films and the plays and the balance and the reality I've got if I've first not met with trauma. My suffering was an opportunity to awaken love. And when I say love, I'm not talking about socks and sandals. I'm not talking about um, hugging trees and dream catchers. I'm talking about muscular love. If you listen to Rumi, the poet, he says, love is not a subtle argument. The door there is devastation. In order to access love or consciousness or God, we have to devastate everything that isn't God. We have to look at all of these wild, unqualified opinions and rages and angers we have, and we have to make them qualify themselves. If they're not coming from kindness, they need to get out. And when we clear those away, uh, in Christian mysticism they call this apophatic theology, which is um, uh, finding God through negation or finding the self through reduction, so we get rid of everything in our life that isn't kindness and we end up left with just our authentic self, just this bundle of awesome love. It's very muscular. Brumi said that birds make great sky circles with their freedom. How do they learn it? They fall. And in falling, they're given wings. So suffering, and I suffered, is an opportunity to awaken love. It's, a, it's an opportunity to, to awaken your authentic self. He is there. He is present. He's observing from the back all the time. And when we awaken him, he goes, okay, we're awake. Uh, we're awake, but this place is a mess. This small city of yours, this body with all its trillions of cells, you've got no control over it. You know, I'm like, it's like Odysseus coming back to Ithaca after the Trojan Wars and, and nobody recognizes him and his kingdom's been overrun by marauders and he has to fight to win it back. It's a brilliant allegory. So this idea is that when we awaken, we go to war and win our body back. We get rid of anything that isn't kindness. And that takes time. That, you know, that, you know, that, that uh, takes patience. It takes massive courage. It takes intelligence. But once we awaken this, the fall is the call obviously the suffering is the opportunity to do that then we can start looking at a higher level of play so we're no longer learning to fight an aggressor in the street we're learning to engage the aggressors in the only place they exist which is in us if we don't give them conceptualization if we don't give them form and aspect they have no reality other than as a neutral energy i know i'm aware that i'm talking about a high level of play but we should all be going out every day and aiming to at least be saints, all of us. This is our birthright. This is our opportunity. So if there are kids out there now who are listening to this and they are suffering, and I, I feel that, um, it's a call. It's an opportunity to do the rigor. It's an opportunity to go in. 
It's an opportunity to challenge these feelings. It's an opportunity to win back all of the aspects of yourself that you've lost. It's the opportunity to awaken to a different kind of life. I am certain of this. Uncertainty is an attribute of God. In the Holy Quran, certainty or yakin is one of the um, 99 names of Allah, one of the divine attributes. So when we feel certainty, we are, we are in possession of an aspect of God. Um, and I am certain that suffering can, is an opportunity to awaken love. Certain that suffering is an opportunity to find a different way of living. So it's no bad thing. It's, I know I'm not belittling the way people feel. I know it can feel as though it's the end of the world when you wake up at four in the morning in a cold sweat and you think it's going to be another long day. But I promise you this is an opportunity to change. This is an opportunity to go inside, look at what it is that's torturing you and bring it back out to the light. And when we bring it back out to the light, in the Old Testament, that's what they call the burnt offering or the animal, the animal sacrifices when we um, sacrifice um, the part of the animal soul or we, or we burn up the negativity that's in us. So we're, not, we're doing a conversation now, James, me and you, um, and I'm aware that when I'm talking to you, this is a burnt sacrifice. This is me taking any negativity that might be left in me and converting it into pure, aligned energy, love. That's what we're doing now. So this is a burnt offering. And when I make this burnt offering and it's left on this, like all the other amazing videos you've done with, and talks you've done with other people, um, it's going to go out and it's going to, people are going to feel it because they will feel certainty in it. They will feel truth and it will act as an intercessor and guide them to a better place. It might even just give, give them a bit of balm, but it will do something. So when I say burnt offering, I'm, I'm talking in a very pragmatic sense. If I sit and write a book, it's a burnt offering because I have to, I have to get all that resistance that rises up in me that says, don't sit down. Don't want to sit down. What's the point of sitting down? It's painful to sit down for eight weeks and write a book. Every time I meet that resistance and overcome it, I am, I am using that, that, um, I'm using the aspect of myself as the oil for the lamp. I'm literally burning up and, and I'm turning material into spiritual. It's very difficult to do, but not really much different to when you go and hit the weights. Or when you go and do a run, you know, you are, you are burning up fuel in order to create the volition for a training exercise. Spiritually, what we're doing here is we're burning up fuel in order to create a piece of work that will go out as an apostle and talk to kids, talk to people. And they will know it's coming from love because there's no agenda here. There's no agenda for you. There's no agenda for me. There's no agenda at all, you know. And, and that's what makes it pure. That's what makes it aligned. I'm not trying to make money. You're not trying to make money. We're just trying to deliver a message because we care about people. That's exactly I've, it. Yeah, I've, I've orchestrated my life, James, so that I can get rid of anything that isn't love. I've, get, I've orchestrated my life so I'm in a place where I don't have to make a living because I don't want anything to interfere with my message. My message can be pure and aligned because it is not... Uh, there, there are no uh, agendas with it at all. I'm aware that my publisher is trying to sell a book. I've got two publishers, but I'm not trying to sell a book. 
I don't need it. I, I want them to sell the book because, you know, they've spent a lot of money to make it, but I don't need to make money to, to live. I don't need to. I've put myself in a position. I've made my footprint so small that I don't need to do that. I just want to deliver a message of love and I want it to be muscular. And I'm going to say your, your, your fame is waiting to quote Dante, but you won't find it from a cushion or a bed. My message is not a soft message. My message is muscular. My message is saying you've done the outside work. You've lifted those heavy weights. You've hit that bag. You've done your jiu-jitsu. Okay, let, that's the lesser jihad. Let's go for the greater jihad, the battle inside. Let's win this kingdom back so that when you're sat at home on your own in the dark, you know who you are. Do you know who you are? If you don't know who you are, this is an opportunity. Your suffering is an opportunity. Your fear is an opportunity to find out exactly who you are. And once you find out who you are, of course, that comes with, uh, with a blueprint. Who, when you find out who you are, you find out what your purpose is. Once you find out what your purpose is, you've connected to a divine satnav, and it will lead you street by street, road by road, city by city, country by country, world by world, reality by reality to the place you need to be. Not the place you want to be, but to your potential, to your optimum. So this is exciting. I know people are out there listening now and they're suffering. And I, and, but I'm saying to you that you are absolutely as close as you're ever going to get to freedom when you're suffering. You're never going to get closer than that. Nobody, nobody looks for the answer when they're comfortable. Nobody looks for the answer when everything's going well. They look for the answer when they're suffering. So once you're suffering, you know, uh, um, you're cooking on gas. You're in the burn. You know, like when you go to the gym, a good weight trainer will find the burn quickly. He'll stay in the burn long because he knows the growth is there. If you're suffering, you're in the burn. Don't turn out, turn in. Don't look for the help out there. Look for the help inside of something calling you. And it's going to lead you to where you need to be. It's a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. No, and, and I want to touch on something as well that, that you talked about before. So you lost your brother and your sister to addiction. And I think that yeah. that's an, an issue that really needs to be brought out into the light. And, and it's totally, it's, it's a double-edged sword as I talk about. It's what you're talking about as far as that self-exploration, but it's also an environment to allow people to get to that point as well and so what really breaks my heart not so much with alcohol but basically everything else how that's demonized and if you're an addict you end up in prison yeah. you know versus us realizing that addiction violence social media gambling porn whatever whatever it is that you're using to fill the void is is a complete red flag for a mental health a parasite you know, whatever you want to describe it as. Absolutely, yeah. So having that compassion towards addiction to allow these people that are hurting to be able to find their way out. But sadly, in many countries, you know, we have the opposite where we add shame and guilt because we arrest and imprison people that are hurting. Yeah, it's very true. That's a really insightful, um, uh, that's a really insightful outlook. It's exactly how it was. That's just why I've written a, a, the BAFTA I won. I won a BAFTA for a film that I wrote about alcoholism because everybody was ashamed of alcoholism. I've written two films about alcoholism now. Um, and they're both very, very powerful because they're honest. And it's saying that my brother was an alcoholic, but he was a, he was a broken poet. He was a lost poet. He was the most beautiful man. He was the most soft man. He was, he was an amazing guy. Um, and I remember 
I remember when I was uh, when we won the BAFTA for it. And uh, again, this this isn't meant to criticise my parents because my parents were just reacting how they'd been brought up to react. They were my mum and dad were more afraid of shame than they were of an assassin's bullet. Um, and I went round to my mum's house to show her my BAFTA. I said, "We've won a BAFTA, mum." And that you could cut the atmosphere with a knife. And I said, and I felt this fear rise up in me. And I said, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. And then I realized it had been on the television that day that we'd won a BAFTA for this film. And it was about alcoholism and it was dedicated to my brother. I said, is this about what was on the television about the film? Yeah, well, we don't want our dirty washing clean in public. And I said, it's not dirty washing. I said, this is my brother. It's not dirty washing. I said, I'm not ashamed of my brother. And they said, well, we are. But that, you know, you could look at that and be angry about that. But that's, you know, my mom and dad were so afraid that that's, that was what they saw. They were, they weren't, they were more terrified of, of the curtain twitchers. But I'm not ashamed. But I realized, I realized, if I'm being honest, that I was ashamed of them. When my dad came to the hospital drunk, when my brother was dying, I was mortified with shame. But I didn't recognize my shame until I pointed out their shame. And of course, that helped me to clean that because I recognized that my dad was brought up in a hardy working environment where drinking was normal. If you didn't drink, you were seen as odd. And he didn't have the education or the understanding to fight against that. My dad wouldn't have thought twice about turning the, the hospital with a drinking in. He wouldn't have seen what was wrong with that. He wouldn't have understood it. Also, he wouldn't have coped without a drink. I had, uh, right in the film, called, it's called Brown Paper Bag. If anybody wants to watch it, it's online free. But right in the film about my brother enabled me to find such compassion for my dad, such compassion for my mom, because I understand fear. I've had, I've had so much terror in my life, I've just wanted to run away. Even when I was a seasoned martial artist, when people were threatening to kill me, I've had so much terror, it took every bit of my training to be able to control that and stay and not run away. And so I understand fear. So I never judge somebody when they, when they react with fear because it overwhelms them. So I found so much love and compassion from my mom and dad by writing about alcoholism. And I wanted to say to people, this was my brother. I loved him. I still love him. And I want to celebrate this. And when my brother died, and he died violently, um, and I was with him, I was the only one with him when he died, when he left, I felt his spirit leave. And over the coming months and years, I demanded, and I found, went did this with the scooting with my writing, I demanded that he leave me his lessons, that he leave me his life lessons. And what he taught me was this. If you listen to fear, it will shrink your world. My brother was um, going to change the world. He was going to travel the world. He was going to be a chef on cruise ships. He was going to be a... Um, was going to be a tailor. Was, he was going to be a writer. He was going to do all these amazing things. And he was so, uh, he was such a maverick. But he listened to fear. And my brother's world shrank from the globe to a, to a stool in a hallway in a shitty flat in a shitty district in Coventry where, where his kids were stumbling over sherry bottles. My brother's world shrank to the size of a stool. And then I watched him shrink and even his body was too big for him. Even his body was like a world to him. He was frightened to be in his body. Um, in the words of Mesna, he was afraid to be alive. Um, and he said, that's what happens when you listen to catabolic fear. 
So he said, it was your shrink that. So he said to me, every time you feel fear, expand into it, embrace it, intercourse with it, absorb 99% of it, use it as fuel, because it's going to rise up to claim or be claimed. It's going to be a bear. It's going to, and, and you've got to ask yourself, am, am I feeding the bear by making myself small, or is the bear feeding me? So my brother taught me about fear. He taught me not to listen to fear. And that's what I did. I went out and I just kept expanding my world until I was in the other world. I was no longer in this world of cause and effect, James. I went to the other world. And the other world is what you, the, the world, I would describe it as the world post-knowledge, post-awareness. So when you, are, when you are asleep, you are in a mundane kind of animalistic world um, where everybody is affected uh, by the rules and the, the mores and, and you know all the stuff they read in the papers, all the stuff they hear on the news. Um, when you wake up and you get re when you reclaim your body, you you transcend that world and you're looking at it from a different perspective. You are a different person. So um, it wasn't even like I just expanded myself within this world. I span expanded myself beyond this world. And of course, you know, that's that's the process of getting rid of everything, you know, um, getting rid of every, anything that obscures of you. That's the process I've been going through. But my brother taught me that. I wouldn't let him leave without learning that from him. He taught me not to listen to fear. I was with my sister recently when she died. Um, and her parasite uh, took her down to under six stone. Every organ was failing. Um, and with all my knowledge... With, with everything I've got, I couldn't help her. And I couldn't help her because she didn't want help. She wouldn't ask for help. You know, um, she's been an alcoholic for about 15 years. My mom and dad are committed. Um, we took her to AA. But these were all things that we did. You know, she was never able to do it herself. And you can't help people unless they ask for help. You can cure people. You can heal people if they're open to it. But my sister was, you know, again, I was very blessed because I was with her when she left. Um, but I couldn't help her because she didn't want help. You know, she would be out, even though she was crippled, she would be out for one day and she'd drink again. That was the parasite in her. And the parasite became more her than not her. So it was never a point that you were talking to her, really. You were always talking to this addiction that was inside her. But I've also seen people who have been very bad at, you know, death's door who have come through and who we have been able, been able to help. With my sister, my brother, all I could do was meet them with compassion and love, um, non-judgment, and that's what I did. I, I, my, even on the day my sister was dying, on the day she died, I couldn't cure her, but I could still make her laugh. I could still hold her hand, and I could still get her laughing. I could get her crying with laughter, because all I felt for her was absolute compassion, absolute love. But that's because I could see beyond the addiction. So there was no sense of judgment. There was no sense of dissonance. I knew exactly what was going on. But you can't help people if they don't ask for help. Yeah. Well, it's something that I've seen in you know, my career, which is you know, the, the broken men and women of the world, you know, the homeless, yeah. the, the people who are driven to addiction, the people who have to turn to prostitution. And there, there is this kind of looking down your nose element that a lot of society has. And, and my, my counter to that is put yourself in a preschool. Do you think any of those giggling little toddlers dream one day of living under a motorway bridge and selling their body for 
for money. No, of course they don't, you know. So if when you cease to see these people as human beings, I mean, to me, you basically cease to be a human being yourself. But our point is, if you're in a good place, then your job now is to lift the fallen. And that that is a selfish act, too, because it feels good. It doesn't feel good to break someone's nose, but it feels good to raise someone up. But before we can do that, we've got, you know, we can't help people if we're broken ourselves. You know, it can become part of our healing to help other people, but it's, uh, you know, it's no good trying to fix other people if we're still wrestling with our own addictions. But the best thing we can do for anybody is to get ourselves back to balance. You know, if I'm still a criminal, if I'm still, you know, if I'm still assassinating people with my gossip and my Twitter feed and if I'm still being unkind in the world, it's a folly to go out and try and help other people. First of all, we need to get ourselves balanced. First of all, we need to find ourselves. Once we've, once we've escaped the parasite ourselves, once we've escaped the addiction, then we can show people the route out. So we've got to get out of the burning building, to, uh, to use a fireman metaphor. And once we've found a way out of the burning building, and we know the way out of the burning building, then we can go back into the building and help them to come out. But if I'm still struggling with my own addictions and my own dissonance, then I need to get that right first. Otherwise, it's just the broken trying to fix the broken. So the best way we can serve people is show them that it's possible to transcend. It's possible to heal, um, not just despite our suffering, but because of our suffering. So it's really important, you know, we've, we've got no right talking about, you know, a broken economy if we've still got, you know, uh, we still can't control our own waistline. You know, it's no good. It's no good talking about the pollution of the world if we're still smoking cigarettes and polluting the trillions and trillions of cells in our own body. Our job, and the world relies on us to do this. Our job is to reclaim ourselves. And once we reclaim ourselves, our proximity to the center is so strong that other people will be healed just because of our proximity, or they'll see the potential of healing. So it's always about coming back to the self first, fixing the self first, aligning the self first. Otherwise, we're just carrying an angry banner in a march and adding hate and anger to the world. It's, you know, it's the same level of energy that we're marching against. So we don't march against war, we march for love. And the best way to march for love is to be a living example of what love is. And as we said, that's a process. That's something we're going to continue to work on. But it gives you every incentive because we both know, you know, often when people are damaged, they will go and fix anybody else but look at themselves. Um, And they're not really going to be able to help other people if they can't help themselves. You've got to get yourself right first or you've certainly got to at least be in the process of getting yourself right so that you are a work in process, a work in progress, you know. So I always encourage people, you know, if they want to make a difference, change themselves. This is what the, the Dalai Lama said to some a guy said to him, what you know, kind of quite pretentiously, what are we going to do about all the broken people in the world, uh, Dalai Lama? And he said, and the Dalai Lama gave him this kind of knowing look and said, what we're going to do is we're going to fix ourselves before we start worrying about the broken people in the world. You know, we've got to get ourselves right. We've got, to, we've got to know how to be fixed in order to fix other people. Frankl said, Victor Frankl said that the people that give light must first endure burning. And what he meant by that was 
that we have to we have to burn up the fuel of negativity in us and bring ourselves to alignment before we can create light for other people. It's very powerful and it's good because it's local. It's saying, look, you don't got to go to India to, to save a small village. You, you know, you've got to start in, you've got to start with the image in the mirror. You've got to start with what you eat and drink. We want to change the world. We can't even control our own palate. You know, we want to, we want to, we want to change the world, but we can't stop ourselves gossiping about people. We want to change the world, but we can't stop ourselves from accessing sexual pornography. We want to change the world, but we can't stop ourselves from thinking of another woman when we're sleeping with our wife. You know, we want to change the world, but we can't stop ourselves from hating against all of the cartoons they put up on the television, the presidents and the prime ministers. That it's very, very easy to hate, but hate is bait. You know, so we, we've got to recognise this. We've got to see this. We've got to um, we've got to reclaim the parts of us that have been lost, and that is a full time job. But for anybody out there that's suffering, that's the call. The call is for you to work full time on yourself. And again, part of that might be that you go out into the community and help other people. But if you're going to be a powerful healer, then you have to be congruent. Your thinking and saying and doing needs to be in alignment. If you're going to go out and help other people um, and you're not actively working on yourself, at some level they will know and your help won't help. It won't do anything. It will just make things worse. So the incentive is always to fix yourself, get yourself aligned, and that's and that's worth getting out of, out of bed in the morning for. And the moment you do that, teachers will come to you. Teachers will appear. The right book, the right podcast, you know, the right teacher, the right, uh, you know, the universe will conspire. Once you start to actually lean towards um your own alignment, the universe will conspire in a very literal way to bring you everything you need. Because it wants people to be balanced. It wants people to convert the darkness into light. And again, it's very literal. If, uh, if, our, if, our, if we were looking at the analogy of a candle, then uh, the body is the wick, um, and our mitzvahs, our charity, our service, you know, our study, our, our internal training, that is the oil, that, that is the, the wax that burns up. So we've got, we've got to burn our own negativity in order to create light for other people. We don't create light for other people by telling them how to burn theirs. We show them how to do it by burning ours. I was going to say, and that's been the example so many times on, on the podcast with so many of the guests. It's, it's not the, you know, the, the professor of psychology that has a two-hour PowerPoint presentation that resonates with people. It's the soldier, the fireman, the police officer, the medic, the you know, the whoever that tells their story of of their immense darkness and then yeah. their ability to find the light within themselves. And then that yeah. story, that person now, you know, without even realizing it, has become a beacon for so many other people that are hurting. Firstly, because they see themselves in that story. And secondly, now they've seen that they are able to transition from that deep depression or suicide ideation or wherever they're yeah, at yeah. to a place where now they're a healer. That's absolutely true. And what we realize as well, as shamans or as mystics or as healers or whatever, whatever you want to call yourself, what we realize is that there's a deal going on. I'm going to get most of my knowing through, through my own actions and through what I do, but a percentage of my knowing won't come to me till I share my knowing with other people. 
I won't know what I truly know until I share it with other people. So when I do a podcast, I always reveal something that I never knew before. It comes through me. So a big part of uh, the expansion of our own awareness or the revelation of our own consciousness comes when we share what we know with other people. Um, and they, like I said, they know certainty. They understand certainty. They understand these divine attributes because they are so potent. It speaks to them. Um, so we, as exactly what you said, we show them how to um, uh, create light by creating light ourselves. And there'll be a lot of kids out there who will think they're beyond redemption. They're too old. They've done too much wrong. But actually, the people with the worst traits, the people with the most damage, the people that have done the most damage, have got the most potential to find uh, spiritual enlightenment because they've got so much negativity to burn. If I resist the negative things that I was doing last year or yesterday, if I can resist them and not do them anymore, and I can burn them up and create light, um, you know, then I'm, I'm turning the material into the spiritual. That's what I'm doing. That's the transition. That's what we're here for. And if I have a lot of darkness, if I have a lot of depression, if I have a lot of anger and rage, that's a tremendous amount of light that I can create. So they always say, especially in the Judaic texts, that um, uh, the, the, the bigger the sinner, the, the bigger the potential for spiritual advancement. Because you have so much, like with me, I had so much violence in me, so much damage that I needed to convert. And I've converted it into 50 books, uh, 30 in 21 languages. I've, I've done 15 films, five stage plays, thousands of articles, thousands of talks, thousands of visits. I've created so much. And the reason I've been able to do that, James, is because I had so much darkness in me. But I took charge of that darkness and then I've created light with it. That's what I've done. So when you look at the book that I've written or you listen to this podcast, this is, a, this is an example of a burnt offering. This is an example of me turning the material into the spiritual. So you know, I've, I've found an avenue for my stuff and I've learned enough discipline and self-sovereignty to be able to look at those dark feelings and when they rise up in me, instead of reacting to them and creating negative karma in the world for myself, I've written a book, I've made a film, you know, uh, I've done a stage play, I've done a musical, I've written an article for the Times, I've done a podcast, I've done London Real, I've done a TED Talk, whatever it is. When I did a TED Talk, you know, I burnt up 90 hours of burnt offerings, 90 hours I studied to do my TED Talk, 90 hours of practice, because I knew that once the TED Talk was going to go out, I needed to reduce it so it got the essence of my story. Um, in a 20-minute talk, and they needed to learn it off by heart. So 90 hours of burnt offerings are in there, and they are there forever. That can't be taken off me. The, the stock market and this coronavirus can, you know, can wipe out my estate tomorrow, but it can't take the, off the thing. Can't take off me the things that I own, and the things that I own are the things that I've done for other people or the service that I've done. So if there's someone out there who's sitting in a prison cell or someone that's in a violent life and thinks it's too late for me. It's not true. You, are, you have more potential than your local priest. The local priest isn't going to have that much to burn up. If you've got a lot of violence in your life or a lot of depression or a lot of anxiety, you have a tremendous amount to burn up and to create 
uh, you know, this infinite amount of light with your burnt offerings. So when, again, when you study the old texts, uh, some of the arcana, some of the teachings in there, although they're allegorical, they're so, so amazing, you know. I've been, I've, I've had, I've had teachers and lessons because I, because I really want to do this. This is what I've dedicated my life to do. The teachers and the teaching and the community has, that, that has come to me from all around the world has been massive. I'm falling over myself with teachers and lessons. That's why I want people who are listening to this to be excited. The moment you take one step towards goodness, it will take 10 steps towards you. And you will get two giant Dharma protectors. And these Dharma protectors will be with you and they will bring you the means you need to grow. Or more importantly, the means you need to shrink. You know, we need to bring our ego and make it smaller. So the teachers will turn up um, and the lessons will turn up and the community will turn up. It's there and you have the ability to attract it just by turning towards goodness, just by making the decision to turn towards goodness. So the people out there that I am most talking to, the same as you, are the people who are depressed, who are, you know, who are suicidal, who are suffering, but also the people who are violent, the people who are displacing their violent, the people who have made mistakes. Um, if you've made, I doubt whether you've made as many mistakes as I have. If I was around at the time of Moses, I think there might have been a 13th commandment. It would, have <laughs> had my, it would have had my name on it. So if I can repent, um, and when I say repent, I mean return to homeostasis, return to balance. If I can do that, it's possible for everyone. And you look at Milarepa, uh, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, they call him um, um, murderer turned saint, killed 35 people in a revenge attack on his village um, and was so um, distraught about it, he decided to seek uh, enlightenment in one lifetime. He became a saint within one lifetime. Uh, Angulimala um, was another uh, Buddhist saint. They say he killed 999 people before the Buddha converted him, and he was transformed within one lifetime. Saint Paul was uh, Saint Paul. I think Paul wrote 17 of the books in the New Testament, um, and he persecuted Christians. Uh, he was a very violent and hateful man. Um, and on the, the road to um, Damascus, he had an epiphany and he transformed his life. Mandela was a terrorist before he spent 30 years in um, Robin Island and became this modern day saint. You know, the examples are all out there. The examples of people who lived very violent lives and, and reached an elevated state, not despite their violent life, but because of their violent life. Um, you know, there are so many examples out there. So there's so many so much potential for everybody that wants to turn and live a better way. Yeah, no, I, and there's so many great examples as well. But what I want to do now is is actually bring in your journey. Then, so yeah, you know, you're in the martial arts. You you've you've had this trauma. You had lack of support from you know your family, sadly. So lead me through your journey into. Uh, I guess I guess the the point where you physically realize you started using violence as a coping mechanism and then and then your journey out of that. Yeah, I had one very particularly bad depression <clears throat> when I was in my early twenties. Um 
and this depression used to just visit me, used to come into my life. It used to, you know, rape and pillage. It used to sweep me and it used to, it used to just take over my whole life. My, uh, hi, my name's depression. See you again tomorrow. And it was a, the most painful, lonely, sad place to be. On this one particular depression, I just remembered reaching a point where I'd exhausted the doctors, I'd exhausted my friends, I didn't know who to talk to. My wife was afraid of the depression, you know, because I'd be following her around the house like a lost puppy. Um, so she, she, she didn't know how to cope with my depression, which made it even worse. I just found this inner rage and I just thought, I'm not living like this anymore. That is it. That, uh, this is over. I am no longer going to live like this. I'm going to do something about this. And I would say that this was my first communication with my soul because I had this idea immediately to write a pyramid on a piece of paper and on each step of the pyramid write down one of the things I was afraid of. So it's an exercise in self-honesty. I wrote down all the things I was afraid of and I systematically started to confront those things, gain desensitization to the adrenaline and the fear and climb to the top of the pyramid. Obviously I recognized as I grew that Lots of the mundane fears, like a fear of spiders or a fear of dentists or a fear of going in a karate competition or whatever it was, they were like placeholders because below that I, I recognized, actually, I'm afraid of my wife. I'm afraid of marital conflict. So she dominated and bullied me. I was afraid of my mother. I was a grown man, but I was still afraid of my mother. I was afraid of success. I didn't know what success was. I only knew it meant change, and I was afraid of change because success didn't just mean changing me, it meant that would affect my wife and my kids. I was afraid of, I was afraid specifically of change. I was afraid of changing the workplace. Everything frightened me. And I started to recognize this. So as I overcame each fear and got desensitization to each fear by confronting it, by absorbing it, and by overcoming it, I expanded in consciousness. So the energy I, ex the energy I used to overcome the fears was the burnt offering. So when I got anxiety and, and um, stress when I was coming to confront one of my fears, and, but I still did it anyway, all of that stress and anxiety was burnt up in the exertion and that fear was liberated. The effulgence that was in the fear came over to me, but the actual nature of the fear itself disappeared and never came back. The top of the pyramid was a fear of violent confrontation. That's when I became a bouncer. Obviously, this was over a period of time. It was a process. Um, my confidence grew exponentially as I climbed the pyramid. I gave up my, my factory job. I became a, a bricklayer. Um, uh, and then, I, you know, so I was really getting confident. Um, I was standing up to my wife. I was standing up to my mom. I was living, you know, this brave life. I was training in martial arts. And I decided that in order to overcome my fear of violence, I would take a job as a nightclub bouncer with no intention of staying there for any length of time, but just to overcome that fear. And of course, I went on the door and I realized many years later, this was my first real metaphysical experience. I was not guarding the door of a nightclub. I was guarding the doorway to my own heart. When I say my own heart, I mean the doorway to my own will. So my will used to be taken over by addictions, by the passions. I'd have a rush of passions and my will would be taken over by it. You know, with any kind of arousal, my will was wiped out. So because I'd built my will up again on this fear pyramid, um, 
uh, I recognized that uh, on the door, I was guarding the doorway to my will. So was I going to let this aggressor that's coming towards me invade my thinking, take over my will, and force me to acquiesce? No, I wasn't. So that's why I went up. That's what I recognized later, that the door wasn't really about the external battle. It was about the internal battle. I also realized metaphysically, because I started to write about it, and to, so I could understand it, and I started to teach it, I recognized that these monsters that were facing me, and I was in thousands of violent situations, hundreds of fights personally, they were queuing up to fight me, but they were all manifestations of my own thinking, of my own damaged cognition. Because it wasn't just the nightclub. If I went to a wedding or a funeral, I always ended up getting in fights. So there was always someone there that had disrespected me and ended up, I ended up knocking them out. So wherever I went, there was violence. And once I recognized that, once I realized that I was creating these unconsciously and then developing the skills to beat them, I was able to stop doing that. I was able to no longer be a doorman. I was able to let go of the violence. Um, obviously, a lot of things happened along the way that I was on the door for nearly a decade. And this was a process. I eventually gave up my job in the factory and I taught full time. I started writing full time. But um, that's what my search in the martial arts was for efficacy. I wanted to find a martial art that worked in a real situation. I didn't really find one, to be honest. What I did was I adapted everything I'd learned. Um, and I recognized that the only constant in the in a real fight was preemption normally a, a technique that would maybe move eight to ten inches and it took me through hundreds of fights successfully the idea of grappling which i loved i studied judo full-time for nearly two years at an international class the idea of grappling with somebody in a real situation was we knew it was so dangerous because we were aware that you were never really fighting just one person there was always the potential that it was two or three we always, we always worked on the premise that everybody was carrying, that they had a weapon. A lot of them would bite. A lot of the good fighters would bite body parts off. So the idea of limiting yourself by going to the ground, rolling over broken glass, getting stamped on by a friend of a friend of a friend of the guy uh, that you're fighting with or getting stabbed by his girlfriend, we just never went to the ground. We learned to work from a vertical position and we learned to uh, control situations with um, magic sound, Kotodamagaku, you know, the use of sound with voice. Uh, we used to uh, control people physically if we had to and throw them out. And if the situation got beyond us, we would be preemptive. We would stop a fight before, before the aggressor was even able to get into the fight. So the moment we knew a situation was going to become physical, we would be preemptive and we'd stop the fight before it started. And we became masters of doing that. So I learned what efficacy was, not by working from a dojo and, and not by thinking about it as a match fight, which is a different thing, and not by thinking about it as a one-on-one -on -one encounter. This is, I went into an environment that demanded efficacy, no less. If you didn't have efficacy, if you didn't have pure technique, if you didn't have effectiveness, you might die. So the environment sculpted us into the shape we needed to be. Now, bearing in mind, four of my friends were murdered during the time I was working as a bouncer. It was so we, we, can, we, can ask, we can ascertain that the threat was real. If the technique didn't work, you went to A&E 
or you might die. People died. Um, the two of my friends were sh- shot and killed. Another one was hit with a with a bat. Another one was stabbed to death. And these were all very competent people, but they they just had um, a moment where they were blind and and uh, they were caught out. So it was very real. So I learned what efficacy was. I took that efficacy and that teaching of efficacy into the martial arts, which, as you know, was most of the martial arts are kind of steeped in denial. And they've all got an idea of what works, but they don't really understand that uh, sport and recreation and art are very different from a fight outside the chip shop on a Friday night or a fight, a fight in a bar when you can never presume it's just one person. Listen, if I was going to put my money on uh, on an art, if it was a one-on-one fight and there was no weapons allowed and no biting, I'd be on judo or jiu-jitsu or wrestling all day long. It's such a wonderful art. But when you take away all of those things, you know, I don't want to be anywhere near the ground. And I am competent on the ground. I trained with Neil Adams, who was the greatest Occidental judo player of his generation. I trained with him full-time in an Olympic class for nearly two years. I know how to grapple, but none of us, even the good grapplers, went anywhere near that in real situations. It was always our support system. So I learned what efficacy was. I started to teach that. Um, um, but because I've been so prolific, James, in, in efficacy, because I, because I was so good at it, it really started to make me question, why am I doing this? What's this for? Can I rationalize or justify this violence? And I started to study and educate myself and I started to reach higher levels of the Buddha and I just realized I couldn't. More than anything, I realized I was the one that was creating the fights because of my own mentality. So then I started to spill into uh, looking at things like forgiveness, looking at things like um, not being preemptive in a fight, but just being preemptive in the sense that I didn't allow, I didn't engage the idea of a fight. I didn't put myself in an environment my head wasn't an environment where violence uh, was an acceptable uh, tool. So I, I completely changed the inner environment in me. I can change my own state and the state of the world around me changed. So all the nightclubs I worked in are all gone. They don't exist anymore. You know, one of them's a hairdresser's, which is absolutely no use to me at all. Um, uh, the others are houses. Some are just knocked down in derelict land. So I recognized that so powerful my my belief that the world was dangerous and I needed to defend myself was so potent and so unquestioned that I created the infrastructure and the monsters in the infrastructure of violence when I realized it was me doing it and I'm certain of this and I reversed my state and brought my state self to a state of balance by burning up all the negativity in me um, the world around me changed and now I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing. I'm talking to the lovely James, James Gearing across the world. You know, it's, it's as though I'm sitting right next to you. I'm writing books. I'm married to the girl of my dreams. I'm just about to move into a, a lovely barn conversion in Stratford up in Avon, Shakespeare country. Um, and all I do every single day is I write, uh, I meditate, um, I train. Everything I do, every single thing I do is orchestrated towards love. My life is just about kindness. It's still firm. I still know when to stand in front of somebody being firm, but there's no violence in my life. So 
when you change the state, you change the world. But changing the state, as we said before, it's not a subtle argument. The door, there's devastation. But uh, I'm, ho- I'm hoping I'll be an inspiration to people who are in a, that kind of mindset and, and they're trying to find something better. Um, I recognized when I was a bouncer, people were very afraid of me. My own family were afraid of me. My friends were afraid of me. I didn't know it at the time. And that is not what I want in my life. I don't want that. I don't want to leave anybody's company without making them believe they can't change the world. But the only way I can do that is if I've changed the world myself, which I have. Well, it's such a, a powerful story as well. And when you talk about the clubs and, and you know, the attracting violence, there was an absolute shithole called the Gold Diggers in Chippenham, right, the town next to where I grew up. And, you know, at the time, you just think it's normal when you go to these places. But now, yeah. in, in, you know, retrospect, with my whole career as a fireman, it really wasn't. It was a really freaking violent place. And, you know, every night, Saturday, you know, Friday, Saturday night, you come out, people would be bleeding on the streets, people were getting glassed yeah. and bottled. And, you know, it was horrendous. But, and that was when I was reading your books because I was terrified. I was a tiny, tiny teenager. I didn't really have a growth spurt till I was 18. And even then, it was only up, not out. Um, but I saw some, some things that you were, you were discussing. One was, um, I would be able to see, the troublemakers and you know i think mm. i think it helped because i didn't i didn't drink till i was 19 so that gave me a little bit of like leeway where i wasn't under the influence um to really kind of see people with a clear eye but so you just you just left you just moved away and therefore you wouldn't get into a fight but the other thing was there was a jealous ex-boyfriend of a girl i was dating and they used to like I mean, not just one-on-one, like you said, a real, a real teen fight, which would basically be five, six of them surround you. And I talked my way out of it saying, Oh, you're the toughest. You're the biggest. I can never fight you. And then they'd walk away with their egos puffed out and I'd walk away not bleeding, which, you know, worked out well. But I won a local taekwondo tournament. And again, understanding that this is tippy tappy stuff. It's point stuff, but it was in the paper overnight. Their attitude changed and they started being friendly. So the facade of who's tough it just it was it was eye-opening and it wasn't like then i walked around thinking i was tough because i wasn't still nothing had changed i was just good at <laughs> kicking people lightly in the face but um yeah the the whole pecking order of violence and intimidation when you take a step back and you look at how ridiculous the whole thing is and how many people have been hurt or died just to puff your chest on on a drunken saturday night yeah and people risk People risk their liberty. They're very fickle with their liberty. And they don't realize either. Everything you think and say and do has a, a, an effect in the world. You're sending out soldiers into the world. You're sending out karmic forces. This realm that we're in, this particular realm, this is the realm of causation. So what we do will have an effect. And, and you know, everybody's karma affects everybody's else. Everything we do affects everybody else. But certainly it affects us, you know. The person that throws, throws the boomerang is the one that eventually receives the boomerang. So when, once we start to understand causation, it's, we realize it's silly to keep creating negativity in the world when it's going to keep coming back to us. We don't realize that when we're unkind to people, that we're unkind to ourselves because it will return. You know, when we are judgmental to people, we're being judgmental to ourselves because that's going to return. You know, when we, when we commit an act, even if nobody sees it, you know, causation doesn't miss it. It's, it's impeccable. It is, a, it is a ledger 
that levels its own books in its own time. We do not escape universal law. Nobody escapes the human condition. And once you understand the Dharma, once you understand that law, you start to become very respectful of what you think and say and do because you think, I know I'm going to meet this again. I'm absolutely certain of that. That's one good thing the door teaches you, working as a doorman. You see reciprocity. You see it over a space of time. You see criminals getting away with stuff, and then they meet a death, you know, out, out, you know, outside a nightclub, or they get a, you know, a life, two life prison sentences, or, um, you know, they end up in a mental asylum, or they end up end up as drug addicts. But you watch over a period of time how the people that look like they're getting away with something over a period of time, it always catches them back up again. And of course, you see it in your own life. You see the things you've thought and said and done. You see how they affect you and you see how they come back home to roost. And if you're intelligent, you can't miss that. So you start to think, okay, this is the law. Causation is a law. It's, you know, um, Einstein's theory of, you know, every, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So we start to go, okay, I'm going to work that. I'm going to work that to the good. I'm going to put out kindness. I'm going to think kindness. I'm going to say kindness. I'm going to do kindness. I'm going to put out stuff that's going to return to me in a good way. I'm going to find people to serve. I'm going to find people to help. And in the process of doing that, I'm obviously helping myself because it is a reciprocal universe. So you start to go, is it, it is really, there is no intelligence at all in being unkind to anybody when you know that first of all, you have to process that in every cell of your body. That's, and it's caustic. And then when you put it out, it will return to you again in whatever form it comes. Um, you just think it's no intelligence in me doing that. So you get mastery of yourself and you make sure that you monitor everything that leaves your lips. And every action you do is monitored. You make sure that you don't put negativity out into the world because you recognize that nothing escapes the eye, nothing at all. Everything will return to us. So that's the first thing. This is one of the things that Aurobindo said. Aurobindo was a mystic at the beginning of the 19th century. Until we understand causation, we can't do anything. You know, we don't even understand the law that's going on around us. People, because they don't do the rigor, they think that certain people get away with certain things and that they can get away with certain things. And if nobody sees it, they can escape justice. But, you know, if they do the rigor, you become very afraid of karma, as in in awe of it. You recognise that this is a law that will always will always balance it balance its books. So I'm going to respect it, and I'm going to train myself to do nothing but goodness, not bring nothing out but goodness. So this is the law people have got to get, and they shouldn't take my word for it. They need to get their own proof. And if they think anybody's getting away with anything, they just need to do a bit of rigor and look below the surface and they will see that everybody is carrying their karma all the time with them, everybody. Nobody escapes it. Even the skin will speak a testimony against you if you're doing things wrong. So it makes you really excited about uh, doing the right thing and finding a way to live in the right way. And I've done it, I've transformed my life from being uh, a very nervous, damaged young guy self-harming, sexually self-harming, uh, violent. Um, you know, when I when I became a doorman and to overcome my fears, but lost my way and became very violent myself. 
you know, the Nietzsche thing, be careful when you're in the dragon that you don't become the dragon. And then having to recognize that I've lost my way, I've lost the path, and then come back again, bring myself back to balance, clean all of that karma up, and then just live the life I want to live. This is that's what I do. I have the opportunity to live how I want to live. I want to live in art. I want to live in creativity. I don't want any violence in my life at all. Not even as a thought. Not even as a thought form. Another another element that's very pertinent at the moment, especially here in the US, we had the George Floyd murder that I'm sure you saw over there yeah, too. Yeah. I not want to focus on violence, but that's just it. Is you know, we're seeing a slow draw towards you know militarization of our police department now, these are men and women most of whom i adore I've, I've worked alongside for my whole career as a fireman yes there yeah. are some bad apples but like you were saying you know um about becoming the dragon it seems like that meet violence with violence model doesn't work very well and it does put the men and women in law enforcement in even more danger so, and I know we have, you know, an issue at the moment in the UK with the knife crime. So as a society, as, 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 a, as a culture, what do you think we can do better to start reversing that and, and, and reducing the amount of violence that we're seeing on the streets outside of our own actions? Well, nothing. That's the problem. People keep thinking about society, about culture. The only thing we can do is change ourselves. That is the big job. <clears throat> so when, when we start thinking about, you listen to people on the television talking about changing the culture, changing the schools, changing, <clears throat> um, you know, society. But, you know, you're looking at people, you know, that probably don't change their socks once a day. You're looking at people that don't have any control of their own physical body. You're, having, you're, you're, talk, you're looking at a lot of the people that you know when you're looking at them. You know, and this isn't a judgment, this is an observation. You know a lot of the politicians, you know their lives. You know they're not people that are living congruent lives. So we, we can't do nothing for society other than reclaim ourselves. But when we reclaim ourselves, we start to reclaim that aspect of society. We've got to become a light, and we become a light by burning up everything in us that's negative. So we can't go at society as, as a whole. It's, it's too big, it's got too many branches, and it's a huge distraction. What we can do um, is we can come back to ourselves and go, okay, being brutally honest, where, you know, where in my life can I balance myself? You know, if I take my clothes off and look in the mirror, is the economy of my body in the right place? When I listen, when I sit on my own in the dark, do I know who I am or do my thoughts still stray into places that I wouldn't want to see in the newspaper tomorrow or that I wouldn't want to talk to my wife about or tell my uh, or tell my husband about. So this is about reclaiming yourself. You know, like I said, we've got people that are marching for peace, but they still can't wipe their own nose. Again, I'm, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm trying to come from a place of what I looked at myself. And I kept looking at the world and I kept saying to Sham, there's so much. There's so many things to shake a stick at. And every time I go towards this area, it's like whack-a-mole. If I push something down over there, it pops up again here. If I push something down here, it pops up again there. Society um, is a distraction. We've got to get the violence out of our own life. That's what we've got to do. We've got to get the violence out of our own mind. And that's a bigger job than we think. People can't even control the food they put in their mouth, <clears throat> but they want to control society and culture. It isn't going to happen. It's just going to be bad after bad. 
what we can do is we can change ourselves, bring ourselves back to, we can, we can bring ourselves back to homeostasis. We can create a light by burning up everything in us that is negative. And then we are a living example. And then we can talk to kids and we can, we're not saying to them, uh, you know, the country's a beast, but the, but the, but the minister that's telling them the country's a beast is a beast himself. Or you haven't got someone saying, look, you know, you've got to stop using knife climb. You know, we've got to stop using knives, but they're sending soldiers out to kill um, foreign people in foreign lands. You know, there's, there, there is so much hypocrisy everywhere. So when you start looking at it, you're thinking it's a waste of time trying to go for that. What we need to do is we need to make sure that we are congruent and that we are at least aiming to be saints in our own life even if that's not attainable. And that's much bigger than what we think. Like I said, we can't worry about the economy, uh, about the um, ecology, while we're still um, spoiling our own body with too much food, too much alcohol, you know, too much violence on the television, too much pornography on the television. You know, we, we are taking in food in the, in, the, in the guise of information from every angle, uh, you know, through the television, through the newspapers, through the daily news, through our own opinions because of that, and we're trying to we're trying to stop violence in the world. We've got to get the you know we we we're sitting there watching I don't know a Tarantino film which is hideous and porn pornographic, um, and we're taking that in and we're cheering because the baddies just got it. And then we go then we sit down and go how can we change the world? How can we get rid of the violence in the world? But we've just had we've just had uh, breakfast, dinner, and tea by watching Tarantino. Or, you know, or by filling our body with all of that violence. There is so much subtle violence going on around us. Um, and eventually you won't, be able to, you won't be able to ingest any of that because it will be a, an offense to the soul. So we have, to, we, have to, we have to recapture and clean up our own animal soul. We have, to, we have to make sure everything that's negative within us has been burned up and create something new for it. Then we will automatically... Um, become an aid to society. And then, of course, this great force that surrounds us, that guides us, will go, this guy is bringing himself back to balance. Let me put him in front of these kids. Let me put him in front of that girl. Let me put him in front of that minister. You know, let me put him in front of this businessman. Um, um, and I'll start, that. you know, God will start to put us to work in the world where we can work. But he's not going to put us to work in the world if we can't even fix ourselves. So we have to we have to get ourselves right first. Otherwise, it's just projection. It's like we said before: isn't the world violent? But we're still quietly violent in our own life. We we cuddle up to our wife at night, but she doesn't want to cuddle, so we fall out with her and slam doors on the way downstairs, and we very subtly creating violence and fear within our own house. You know, um, there's a lot of things we do every single day, and without going in. Without going too deep, you know, we're, uh, we want to create peace in the world, but we're killing all day, every single day to eat. We're killing them. You know, we're mutilating them, we're chopping them up, we're putting them on barbecues, and we're adding relish to them. That, you know, we can't ignore the fact that that's going to add to the karmic bill. Of course it is, you know. If you, if you imagine um, a, a species coming from another planet, if you imagine that their intelligence level was, 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 the gap between them and us was the same as the gap between us and animals. We we wouldn't we 
you know, and they, they sort of kind of said, well, we can chop these kids up and eat them because, they, you know, they've got no intelligence at all. We're so far ahead of them. We wouldn't, we wouldn't like it very much. So even, even the fact that we're creating so much violence, so much violence with animals every single day, um, and we think that doesn't affect the violence in the world. If you drop a pebble into the water, the ripples will meet every corner of the pond. Everything affects everything. So everybody is responsible for everybody else's karma. We don't think we're responsible for something that happens, you know, in a disparate part of the world, but we are, we contribute to it. We contribute to it with every act of violence that we take part in. We don't like to, we, we wouldn't look at killing animals as violent, but of course it is. It's still a creature. It's a creature with a soul. Um, and we take that soul off it. If you look at someone like Patanjali, the Yoga Sutras, I remember reading him many, many years ago when I was a meat eater, and he said, um, we shouldn't steal. And I remember thinking, that's good, I don't steal. And he said, when we, eat a, when we eat a creature, when we take its body, we steal from it. We take away its chances of working out its karma. And I remember being so shocked by it because I knew it was right. But it still took me quite a while before I was able to let go of that. Again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't a big campaign to turn people against meat. It's just saying that everything we do contributes, contributes to everything that is. We can't separate the violence against animals. Um, we can't separate our judgment against minorities. We can't, we can't, um, we can't separate our violent judgment of uh, you know, the cartoon leaders who are very easy to hate um, and, and believe it doesn't contribute to the world. If we engage hate and anger and judgment um, in any sense at all, envy, greed, gossip, any of those things, if we're engaging in any of those things, we are contributing to all of the violence in the world because everything has an accumulative effect. Everything contributes. So if we really want to start um, affecting culture, and we want to start affecting society, we've got to recognize that this body with its trillions and trillions and trillions of cells is a universe in its own right. So let's get that right first. Let's prove the magic. If we think that we can really make a difference out there, let's prove it by doing it and getting rid of all of the violence from in us, all of it. Have no violence left in us at all. When we can do that, then we can say that we're contributing to culture we're contributing to society and we are helping people that we will never see. We will never see them while we're doing all those things. Um, and, and, you know, and wondering why the world is so violent. We're just in a place of perpetual ignorance. This is about rigor. This is about instead of going out and joining the march, it's about going in and saying, well, I'm going to march against myself because I'm still a hypocrite. I am a fucking hypocrite. I'm going to march against me. I'm going to take, I'm going to take the baton and put my own name on it. And I'm going to walk out with my placard and I'm going to march against myself. I spoke to a kid the other day and he was very angry about, uh, some people that are in his life. And he said, I can't let them beat me because they're kicking sand in my face. They, and if they think I'm going to roll over and, and, uh, you know, they're, they're pure evil. And, and when I listened to him after a, few minutes I realized of course he wasn't really talking about them this kid was four stone overweight you know and and it was full of hate and anger and his own ego was kicking sand in his face his own ego was making him roll over every single day 
when he was trying to get up in the morning for um, to go training or to get his palate right, he was, the sand was being kicked in his own face. He was rolling over. Then rather than look at that and take control of what was in him, he was projecting onto other people. And this isn't a dash at him. This is most people every single day. People are asleep. So, yeah, I want to change the world, but I'm not going to change it unless I change myself. Be the change we need to be. And that is a big big job right there, James. <laughs> no, but I'm so glad I answered, asked that. That was such an, a, an incredible, you know, response. And I agree 100%. You know, okay. I mean, it's absolutely within. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, I'll get some comments being a British man living in America now. Like, oh, do you ever want to go back to, to the UK after seeing, you know, what's going on in America? I'm like, no. Because that's not America. What you're seeing on your TV screens is not America. When mm. I hear people say, I miss 9-12, meaning the day after 9-11, when New Yorkers were banding together after the London bombings, these are all after tragic events, yeah. after the Grenfell fire, the community around there who actually were abandoned by the government. I just released an episode today with a fireman that was on that scene. and um, But that's humanity. That's the compassion. And then even you know the actual landscape you know the florida beaches the adirondack mountains i mean we live in this beautiful country the same in the uk the rolling hills of, of wiltshire and avon are stunning and that's 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 the our our nation and then the net you know the next thing is the people and the compassion and the love and the gratitude and and so if you are seeing this hate and it's protests and it's you know this virus is going to murder everyone you know again if you if you're not looking within first then of course there's going to be turmoil, and you know, and again, I'm not standing from from some ivory tower saying I've I've addressed everything. The whole point of this podcast is me also finding my way through through all the things that I'm going through, and and I've spent four years learning from 350 amazing people now. So, but yeah, I mean, and then to me, then the next step, if you feel like you've got a handle on your own issues and you're addressing them is to walk outside your front door not white house not you know Whitehall, but your front door and go into your community and like all right how can i make this community better and if everyone does that you are going to change the world of course yeah and you'll be you will if you are balancing yourself you will be called you will you will be directed towards where you personally need to go um you know it won't be like you'll have to look for it you'll you'll be directed to where you need to go and you'll do what you need to do. And that will be part of you, uh, part of your own burnt offering, part of your continuing perfection of the self, continuing revelation of the self. So um, it's like I said, it's all about really doing the deep rigor, the self-study and the information's out there um, and finding the proof for yourself. It's no good taking anybody's word for it. All people like me and you can do is, is offer them our inspiration. And inspiration means that we connect them to spirit. We connect them to some kind of truth. Something will resonate, and then it should encourage their search. And the moment they start to search, they will start to find teachers that will help them. And all we need to do, if we need to find, uh, you know, sometimes it's difficult to discern what's right and wrong. If it doesn't come from kindness, it's not right. If it doesn't come from love, it's not right. If it comes from aggression and judgment, if it comes from any of those negative places, it's just a parasite being fed off negative energy. As you know, the world is mostly feeding at the moment off negative energy. We need to make the difference by not feeding off that, not looking at the, sub the subjective news. Like you say, not looking at the news of America every day and thinking that's America. It isn't. 
not looking at the you know the subjective news you know the if it leads it bleeds news and thinking that's the world it's not the world is going to be a projection of um, what you believe and you can change what you believe you know we don't have to believe what we've read in the newspaper we don't have to believe what we hear on the television it's nearly all you know you, you get, you, you're going to get like 15 murder stories 15 disasters before breakfast but that's food you know that goes in through the senses and it becomes flesh it becomes your um, your model of reality it's not my model of reality because I don't watch it I don't need to watch it. I'm interested in, I'm interested in the teacher that's in me. My soul teaches me. And then that my soul will lead me towards the kind of information that can enable me to change my world. And my world cannot be changed without affecting the whole world. Everything affects everything. If a bird lands in a tree, um, to paraphrase Leonardo da Vinci, if a bird lands in the tree, the whole world changes. So I want to make sure that is from a good place. So I absolutely want to help culture and help society and help all of the people out there. Um, but I've got to do that by helping myself. If I want to create light, I've got to burn. And it, and it doesn't mean, when I say burn, it means I've got to burn up all the negativity that's in me. And to do that, I've got to be able to look at the negativity that's in me. Do you know how shocking that is? Do you know how shocking it is to stand in the mirror when you get your fifth down? I got my fifth down, I don't know, about 20 years ago or something. I can't remember, a long time ago. And the fifth down in karate was a master grade. And I look in the mirror, and I don't see a master. I see a masturbator. I see a guy that is overweight, three stone overweight. I see a guy that's addicted to sexual pornography, a guy that still bullies his wife, and that's hard to say. When I say bully, I mean if she doesn't want to have a cuddle with me, I'm going to slam doors. What is that if it isn't violence? It was so shocking to see who I was. You know, a guy that people were afraid of because I was so insecure. I had the skills to kill people in 30 language, languages. And if people upset me, um, I wouldn't hesitate to be violent. And I rationalized that. I saw all of these things in an instant. And it reminded me of what Peter Considine said to me once. We don't always get the grades for what we've done, Jeff. We get the grades for what we're expected to do. And that was what it was with me. So my life went from being an external thing, because I could have a fight, but that was the only thing I was good at. And there was lots of kindness in me as well, but what I mean is I wasn't a master. So I thought, well, I've got to honor this grade, and I need to become a master, first of all, of my body. I've got to become a master of my palate, a master of what I eat and drink. When I start looking at what I eat and drink and I start studying, I realize that Everything that comes in through the senses is food. So I start to correct that palate as well. I recognize that I'm, uh, I'm led like a bull with a ring by my senses. So I need to get control of my senses. I get control of the senses. I get control of the self. The same, when I talk about the senses, I'm talking about the, the, uh, um, the, the sympathetic nervous system, the endocrine, the, the um, the autonomic system. So we need to get control of the autonomic system, the control of my uh, adrenals. And we do that through light eating, through yogic exercise, through qigong, through tai chi, that kind of thing, through meditation. So you start to go into the deeper study. So you go from the exoteric, which is the stuff we know, and I'm going to get my food right, to the esoteric, which is okay. You've got the exoteric. Let's go to the deeper stuff. Let's really get control of things not even getting control of your thoughts, 
going to the level where you recognize that they're not your thoughts. You choose what you think and what you don't think, but they're not your thoughts. There's a center in you, a still center, uh, an eye, an eye, like at the, the center of a storm, with an eye wall around it, and we can sit ourselves in that, and we can observe all of the floating thoughts coming towards us, and we choose which ones we let in and which ones we don't let in. And sometimes when we have a rush of passions, we might have to fight at that doorway, but that's when you start going into the esoteric, and you recognize that there are worlds within worlds, that even just the change of information will, will be a change of world. So uh, when we talk about the world to come, um, it's beyond ignorance. So when I get rid of some ignorance by burning it up, by making it qualify itself, by kicking it out, when I get rid of that, I create light, I create consciousness, I create another world. So I'm certainly in another world. The kid you're talking to now isn't the kid that was scared lying in bed at four in the morning in a cold sweat with depression. That kid was hemmed in by fear. This kid isn't that kid. You know, I'm in a different world and I've been in so many, excuse me, so many different worlds. So I would, I would, I would really encourage people to go to the very edge of their knowledge externally and then start going inwards um, and start looking at what's really going on. And it's not about a conspiratorial world. If there's a conspiracy, it's only something that we've taken as a belief and created as a conspiracy. We're creating it all ourselves every single day. So if you don't want to see a violent world out there, um, bring peace to yourself. And then like, exactly like you said, James, then you will be led towards the people that most need to hear you. It might not be where you think you need to go, uh, but it might not be where you think you want to go, but it'd be where you need to go. And then, then you start working with serendipity, with synchronicity, um, and with, um, I don't want to go too far and too deep, but then we start working with incorporeal teachers, not just the physical teachers we see, but invisible teachers that will come to us from all, you know, in all sorts of different ways. Um, the learning is infinite, and I would encourage people to do it by looking in, not looking out. Start the course in meditation and your world will change immediately. Absolutely. Well, I can attest to that. I mean, uh, Headspace is the app that I use as kind of my, you know, like gateway to, to mindful practice and, and that that on its own, just even quality of sleep, waking up the next day, not having that monkey mind going on. So, but then the visualization element, like, you know, the, the manifest your own destiny. Well, if you want to have that happiness in your life, well, turn off that, that white noise that you get surrounded by 24-7 and start focusing on who you really are and what you really want. You know, are, are you even doing what you want to do? The career you've done 20, 25 years, is it making you happy? Yeah. And if you want to go really hard, then let go of your own will and give your will over to a higher will. And that will be like, uh, be like light traveling through water. It will calculate, this entity will calculate the billions of possible routes you can take through life, and it will deliver you street by street, road by road, as we said before, city by city, world by world, to the optimum route. So that's where we're no longer thinking about our own ambition and our own career or, or our own legacy. We start to think from the highest possible place. Um, then, then we have freedom under authority. So we are being led by our, by our highest instincts, by our highest potentials. That's another level of thinking. So we go from the animal realm. This is what they call it in Judaism. We've got the 
vegetable realm, which is the masses, the animal realm, which is the entrepreneurs, the doers, and then you've got the human realm, which is a realm above those, which dips in and out of those realms, but it no longer has its own sovereignty. It no longer works within cause and effect. It just works for a higher voice, for a, um, for a higher force. And it goes out and it does the work it's instructed to do. This is what I talk about in the Divine CEO book. Um, you know, we, we, do, we connect to a divine sat-nav and it will lead us to exactly the right place, exactly at the right time, in exactly the right way. And we will deliver exactly the right message and then we will move on. We won't need reward for it. We won't need thanks for it. We won't need acknowledgement for it. We only know that when we do that, the right thing will come from it. So we're no longer then working from our own volition. We're working um, as just vessels for service. So there's no limit to the level we can go with this. It can go higher and higher. But again, if it starts sounding complicated, come back to the basics. Is this coming from a place of kindness? Is it coming from a place of kindness? If it isn't coming from a place of kindness, go away and think about it. Yeah, and I can relate completely. When you talk about just just um, relinquishing control, you know, I was a fireman. I, I put my, my uniform on and I got on the rig and we went and, you know, attended to whatever emergency was going on. And it was so fulfilling until the universe shifted and some things happened where I found myself in a place that I wasn't happy. And and then this like manifested out of nowhere. And here we are four years later. I'm talking to Jeff Thompson, who wrote the books when I was a frail 18 year old that I was hoping was going to keep me out of trouble. You know, now I get to talk to these amazing people. But again, the purpose is not to put myself on a pedestal. It's not to put my face out there. It's because I know I became a fireman because I wanted to help people. I became a fireman because I wanted to, to stop pain. You know, I stopped people dying when, when it was preventable. And so, you know, here we are having this conversation so i i relinquished control a long time ago and it's it's absolutely it's true i can see that i can see that in all your work i looked at your podcasts i looked at your site it's wonderful and i see that i see that i see a man who is a vessel i see a man that wants to put out stuff uh, help other people that's the secret of the torah the secret of the old testament um the master sets the table for the servant before he eats himself in other words we call down we call down essence because we want to give it to people because we know people need it. But of course, in doing that, we, we create abundance for ourselves as well because it has to come through us. We have to process it before we give it out to other people. So that's the secret to the tree of life. It's the secret to the perpetual universe. If you want to be abundant, find somebody to serve. Find somebody that needs it. Otherwise, if it's just one kid in a boat with, with one fishing line. I want to be out deep sea, troll, deep sea diving, trawling. I want the big nets. You know, I want to bring in fish for everybody if I can. So the way, you know, the way to really think big is to think beyond the self, think beyond you. So what I do in my own prayers is I say, I say to my God, I, I know I'm thinking too small. Show me how to serve you. If I can connect to an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent force, the all-knowing force, and offer to serve that force, then I will be serving me and everybody in the known universe. It will affect everybody. When we think about serving ourselves, it's small. It's loose change. It's just folly. And it's a place, of course. It's a place we've all been. It's a place I've been, certainly. But I want to think bigger than that. I want to think, think way beyond me. I'm not interested in a legacy for myself. I'm not interested in any of that. It's all egoic. It's all too small. I want to think about... Um, 
I want to think about uh, working my best potential. And the way to do that is to surrender to this higher force and continue to work on that. And as we said earlier on, that's a, a painful process for all the kids out there who are suffering now. You're burning anyway. You might as well burn in, in the direction of uh, creativity rather than burn in the direction of um, self-hatred or, uh, um, or anger or shaking your fist at the sky. Find a way to create with it. And then you're going to be turning the material, even the base material, into something beautiful, into something spiritual. And if you don't like the word spiritual, you're just going to be creating, turning lead into gold. It's just basic alchemy. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned the divine CEO. So I'd love to just uh, take a little bit of time. People listening, like you said, you got 50 books. I read, I think your first three, I believe it was. Um, but now you've got uh, Notes on the Factory Floor, which is another kind of biography. And then you've got Divine CEO, which you're talking more philosophically about. So tell people about each of those books and then where they can find them. Um, Notes from the Factory Floor is a memoir. <clears throat> and it basically, I wrote a, my first book um, in a factory toilet um, 30, 30 years ago, 1992. Um, and so much has happened since I changed my world by publishing that first book. So many things have happened. So this new book, Notes from a Factory Floor, is talking about uh, filling in the gaps between um, become, working in a factory as a floor sweeper and working as a bouncer at night to becoming a BAFTA-winning author, um, you know, teaching for Chuck Norris, um, making films, making plays, you know, living this ex this ordinary guy, living this extraordinary life. Um, so I wanted to write about all of those things that had happened in detail um, and what I learned along the way. It's a confessionary book. It's full of all my own burnt offerings. It's, it's The process of the book was about me bringing to light all of the things that I'm angry about of myself, that I'm ashamed of, and burning them up in the process of making this book. The day I finished writing notes... The idea for CEO came, Divine CEO, 20 chapter headings downloaded into my head, and I spent the next eight weeks writing that. And the Divine CEO is about just what we're talking about, really, James, about creating a covenant with your highest potential. So instead of having covenants with negative things in the world, with any kind of negativity, or agreements with any kind of negativity, or you know, these addictions to any kind of negativity. It's about create, it's about killing those addictions. It's about ending those agreements and creating an agreement or a covenant with your highest potential. Um, and not just, not just why we should do that, but how we should do it. So there's chapters in there about, you know, how to contract the ego in order to expand consciousness, how to expand consciousness through meditation through qigong, through breathing, in order to contract the ego. How to connect to the higher soul, so the lower soul and the higher soul, or the lower potential and the higher potential connect, create an alignment, and then we become this vessel, like, a bit like a, um, like a lead for electricity. So we plug into the mains electric. And once we plug into that, it's like we're, we're connected to a divine sat-nav that will direct our life in the optimum way. So we're no longer scrambling around trying to make sense of the world. We're seeing the world from a different perspective, from a wider perspective. And we're being led through it by um, our highest potential. So it will lead through us. It's like it's looking at the arc of our life 
um, from an omniscient place and it will lead us through and take us to the best potential. Um, so that the whole the, the divine CEO is really about that. And it's about the, you know, about the kind of study that you do to get there, about um, understanding the, the, um, uh, the adverse forces, the, the pressures that will try to stop you. It's talking about the miracles, the siddhas that happen when you start to connect to divinity. Um, you know, and all the, the acts at the, the uh, moments of serendipity and synchronicity that happen when you start to connect to divinity. So it's, um, so it's, it's a very, if, if Watch My Back was a, was a book about, uh, efficacy in martial arts, the divine CEO is about efficacy in spiritual practice. Brilliant. Now, I know you can get, um, the divine CEO on Amazon now or out tomorrow, I think, in, in America. Yes. It's um, on the 31st, I believe, yeah. Oh, 31st, okay. And then what about Notes from a Factory Floor? Have you got a release date for that? It's, you can, you can pre-order off Amazon, I believe, and it's out on the 10th of September. Brilliant. Fantastic. All right. Well, the first of the closing questions I'd like to ask is, are there any books that other people have written that you love to recommend? It can be pertaining to what we've discussed or something completely different. Man's, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is a very powerful book. You could probably read it in a sitting, um, but he has a section at the back about logotherapy, about how to find logo, logo, uh, logos is purpose. So how to find purpose in your life. Um, Frankel spent a lot of time in Auschwitz, um, and he developed his techniques in uh, probably one of the most one of the worst atrocities in the world. He used to carry the Torah around with him. The Torah is the Old Testament, and it's said to be the blueprint of the universe. But the Torah was taken off him by the guards. And he, Frankel said a voice spoke to him in his head and said, we don't want you to read the Torah anymore. We want you to be the Torah. If you can be the word, if you can be the truth, if you can, if you can, um, uh, if you can make it work in this hell, then it, will, then it will prove to other people that it's possible to make it work everywhere. So Frankel was able to get through... Um, despite all the odds against him, with by connecting to purpose. He found purpose. He said, if you've got a why, you'll find the way. So that's a fantastic book. It's, it's very revealing, um, uh, but it's also very pragmatic because he goes into logotherapy at the end, and that's something that you can, um, that's something, you know, you can research afterwards. I would also recommend Nanga Pabat Solo, um, by Reynold Mesner. Just, it's worth getting the book just for the opening sentence when he talks about being on the mountain. No, no one had ever climbed Mangababat solo. It was an inhospitable mountain. Even the Sherpas that lived on the mountain said you cannot climb it without oxygen. And, and Mesner was the first one to do it, but it took him three times. The second time his brother died on the mountain. But he, there's just a part in it, a scene in it, which which massively inspired me. He's on the mountain. The wind and the, the adverse forces are trying to blow him off the edge. He's in his tent. He said, I'm too frightened to go up. I'm too frightened to go down. I'm too frightened to stay where I am. I'm crying for my wife. I'm not ready to be away from her. He said, at this moment in time, I'm afraid to live. But he manages to get himself out of the tent. He, and, uh, and he starts to walk and walk and walk. And then suddenly he realizes, James, that he's walking back down the mountain. It defeats him again. On the third attempt, he, get, he gets up there. 
But I, I remember, I remember seeing him on television once before I just before I knew who he was, and I could feel his presence just from the, his image. He looked like he was carved out of rock. He had so much charisma. He had so much proximity is a better word. This is this is a man that said you can't climb Manga Pabat without invisible guidance, without assistance. He said you do not defeat the mountain. If you're persistent, the mountain might let you go up. So he did it with the aid of the mountain. He did it with with the invisible support. And and I just love the fact that when I watched him on the television, I just could feel his proximity to God or his proximity to that still center. I was awed by it, and that's why I picked up the book. But what I loved about him was the fact that he was saying, I am afraid. I'm afraid to go up. I'm afraid to go down. I'm afraid to stay where I am. I'm afraid to be away from my wife. That was me. I'm afraid to be alive. That was me. And yet he still did it. And I so admired him, not because he climbed the mountain, because he was, wasn't afraid to say, I'm afraid. He completely surrendered himself. He completely, the book was worth its weight in gold because he revealed that it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to fail. And it's kind of saying you won't get through this without some means of invisible support. So I loved that. So Nanga Babat Solo by Reynold Mesner um, is, is, uh, is, a, is an unusual read, but it's a great metaphor. Brilliant. Well, Man's Search for Meaning is sitting on my bookshelf right in front of me. That's been recommended many times, and I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, Mesner's book, I'm going to have to buy now because that sounds incredibly powerful as well. And of course, um, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. I would say it's probably the best book in the world at the moment for this technique. You know, we're talking about reality exists at the level of engagement. The virus in the world at the moment, there's a virus going around the world, isn't it? But often when we get big viruses like this, um, what we see in exaggeration is pointing out something to us that's subtle, that we don't see. So the virus in the world that's killing people is not corona. The virus that's killing people is thought. People's thinking has gone mad. And it's because they think it's their thinking. They don't see that thinking is a realm on its own. It's a separate entity. And we have the ability to refuse thought, to sit in a silent place. We decide whether we accept thought or not. We decide whether we engage it or not. We decide whether we um, identify with it or not. And I would say that Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now, even better if you can listen to it on audio, because he speaks beautifully. It's, it's still an entry-level book. It's not esoteric, but the, but the message in it comes from the esoteric realm, from what they call the hidden Torah, uh, or the hidden word. But he, that is probably the best book in the world at the moment for understanding thought, understanding um, the semi-autonomous thought forms, and, and understanding the insanity of thought if we don't recognize it as being separate from us. And he gives very pragmatic, very practical techniques in how to, uh, again, not to control thought, but how to stop thought and find the still place. And he does loads of stuff online as well, free. He's a, he's a, my, my kids actually went to New York to train with him because uh, I, I introduced him to my kids because I love him. Um, and I just think because his book is so accessible, Obviously, esoteric practice is much bigger than just a technique, but the problem people have at the moment isn't with corona and isn't with violence in the streets and isn't with 
race or culture or, or anything like that. The problem is with thought and the insane places it takes people because they don't, they don't even know that the thoughts that are in their head are not their thoughts. They don't know they have the ability to stop thought, to challenge thought. Thought is like a vampire that needs our permission before it comes across the threshold. But people don't know that, so they agree to let it in anyway. They don't recognize that there is a threshold and there is a location in the body where the threshold is. I write about this in The Divine CEO. There's a place, there is a doorway to the will or to the heart that we can guard. Um, so thought is the, you know, this virus that's going on in the world at the moment is, is an indication of, of a bigger thought, of a, of a, a bigger virus, sorry, and a, a virus that nobody is quite recognizing. I can't tell he's probably the first one to, it's not the first one actually, because there's lots of esoteric guys doing it, but the esoteric very, very rarely breaks into the exoteric. It very breaks, very rarely breaks into the mainstream, into Waterstones or into Borders or Smiths or whatever the bookshop is in, say in the States or wherever. So Eckhart Tolle has managed to get a book into the mainstream that is talking about a very esoteric issue and it's very close to all of us. Uh, and he doesn't pull any punches with it, you know. He talks about what it is um, and uh, he, he leads people to a place where they can go deeper if they want to. So it's the book I give everybody if they're struggling with their thoughts. And I'd also recommend Warrior. I wrote a book myself. Forgive me for for recommending my own book. No, please. Um, Warrior is a book. Um, if you're not quite ready to look at the esoteric yet, and if you're not quite ready to have the God conversation, Warrior is a book um, that it's very pragmatic. It's very empirical. It comes from all of my experiences. And I've known that people who have read it have been in very, very dark places and it's pulled them out of it because it's ignited a bit of purpose in them. Purpose is really important. In the Old Testament, God was called Logos. The Logos was one of the names for God. It's an attribute of God. So purpose is vital. If we've got that purpose in our life, like you've got purpose in your life and you're transforming other lives because of it. So if we can help people to find purpose, and books are always a great way in because, of course, you know, you read a book, leads you on to another book. You read a book, leads you on to a course. My kids were able to read a tiny little book by Eckhart Tolle. You could read it in one sitting, and suddenly they were able to manifest Eckhart Tolle and be in a room with him in New York. That's the power of this amazing world we're in. You can bring these mystics into your own reality, and they can talk to you, and you can see that it's possible. And that's obviously what you're doing as well. You're bringing mystics into people's front rooms. You're saying it's possible. Look at the universe. Look at how he's helping you. Today, Jim or John or Peter or Mary or Susan, today you were talking about the fact that you're struggling, you need help. And today you've got this podcast that's come to you from out of the ether. It's come from nowhere. It's come to serve you. It's come to help you. So it's, it's an amazing world we, we, we live in, and all of those things are accessible. I'm talking to you in America from Coventry, and it's like you're in my front room. The technology is made available so that we can do that. It's a Siddha, it's a miracle. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And with, with Eckhart Tolle, I, I listened to his book. I've got, I have the power of now. One of my other guests, George Ryan, sent me a, a paper copy, so I'm going to read it again. But it's uh, the missing link. Believe me, it's the missing link. It's amazing. But I listened to it on audiobook years ago. Now um, I was actually very, very 
into Wayne Dyer when he was alive and loved yeah, his work. Yeah. And he really prepared me for what was going to be a divorce that kind of hit me out of out of left field, as they say. But yeah. Eckhart is amazing. But I, I just warn people, don't listen to him if you're drowsy and driving because he will put you to sleep because he's so soothing. But no, but you're absolutely right. And I think that that's the thing. There's, there's so many... That's what I talk about with this. People ask me, oh, you know, and you're afraid you're going to run out of guests. I'm like, no, it's the opposite. Like, I'm seriously contemplating putting a third episode out a week because there so, are so many so people. Many, yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's so incredible. Many. And so, each one has got a piece of the jigsaw and, you know, uh, you know, the, the people that will, will scan through your different guests and one of them will alight for them. They'll go, this is the guy I need to speak to. And they will make suggestions that will lead on to other things, uh, that will lead on to other things. You know, the, the, our ability to grow when we want to grow, our ability to learn when we want to learn is infinite. You know, this is a, this is a living classroom. We're here to learn. We're here to refine. Absolutely. And if, if we have humility, we can learn from people that have already made the mistakes or already been in that dark place, whether it's someone in this generation or someone from 2000 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. These teachers are climbing out of history. They're alive in the books. Their spirit is, um, uh, in you know that their spirit is left in the ink and when we open the page and read the words they come to life they come into our front room we we draw them out of time and space they're eternal exactly all right well then that that was the book area what about uh films any films or documentaries that you're passionate about obviously you've made several yourself but are there any that, that you recommend to people as well I, well I, I love um grand dog day which is which is not often seen as a metaphysical film, but it's a very powerful metaphysical film because it's basically saying that when you align to goodness, everything will work, everything will be perfect. Uh, the character in Grand Dog Day is a very obnoxious and kind character, and he says all the right things to people, but it breaks everything because he's not congruent. Later on, when he finds his congruence and his balance, he says exactly the same words. But his intent is right, and it's transformative. It's so inspiring. And, of course, Field of Dreams um, is a beautiful metaphysical film. Um, you know, that this, this idea that if we build it, it will come. You know, this sense that it will come if we build it. There's a great series on um, Netflix as well that I do encourage people to look at. It's only Danny did one series. Well, there's two. There's one called The Messiah which I found really inspiring. There's one on at the moment called the AO, which is also very daring, very metaphysical, very um, uh, multidimensional, but, you know, thought-provoking. They're very thought-provoking. Excellent. Well, thank you for all those. I mean, the, the, the two films are definitely some that I love, and I haven't... I've heard of The Messiah. I think I've seen that when I scrolled over, and I haven't heard of The AO, so I'm going to have to look at that, because I genuinely yeah, do. Good. I do. Very interesting. Brilliant. Yeah, I do actually go and, and watch most of them when, when they're recommended. I'm on the Kobe, I mean, the, um, excuse me, the Michael Jordan documentary at the moment. Yeah, very different type of documentary yeah, for me. I'm not sure a, I've seen some of that. It's really powerful. Yeah. Very inspiring. Yeah, very, very inspiring. Yeah. Exactly. All right, brilliant. Well, then next question. Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and medical personnel of the world? I can't think of anybody offhand immediately well unless you got chuck norris's phone number because that'd be an incredible <laughs> guess <laughs> he's nice nice guy i really liked it. it's very surreal sitting with chuck norris having tea with him 
you see, that's the thing with the stuff I was teaching. I was teaching truth. I was teaching certainty. And it traveled across the world. And it landed on his desk. And he invited me over twice to teach. Um, there's a seminar in Las Vegas every year. And I went over and taught for him twice. And I sat with him having tea. And he told me about how Bruce Lee used to call him up and say, do you want to come and spar, Chuck? And it was, uh, I just loved the idea that I was sat next to, um, you know, Chuck Norris talking about when he used to spar with Bruce Lee. And he said something really interesting to me. He said, you could do this. Anybody could do this. He said, this is available for everybody. He said, I was, when I was at school, he said, I was just a stumbling kid with a, with a stutter. He said, I did a bit of martial arts because I needed to build my confidence. And he ended up as multiple, multiple times world champion. Um, but he, but he was aware of his own ordinariness. He was aware, he was almost embarrassed by it, which I am as well. Because people, you do extraordinary things and people think you're extraordinary, but you're not. You're ordinary. You are extraordinary, but only in the sense that we all are. And he was kind of saying, this is possible for everybody. So that was really good for me because I did exactly the same. I, you know, I had a lot of fear going over there because I didn't feel good enough. And then when I got there, I realized these were just kids in a room that wanted to learn truth. And I absolutely had truth. I had certainty. And that certainty, you know, it travels. It goes around the world. People will cross the world to shake the hand of certainty. It's a siddha. It's a, uh, an attribute. And it's something that you can't give to somebody, but you can show them how to earn it. It needs to be earned. Brilliant. So if you could get Chuck Norris on, that would be amazing. That would. That would be really good. Well, another one that I'm trying to get, and I've got a mutual friend, but um, you know, but this this whole environment that we're in at the moment, I think has changed things a bit. But uh, Danny Nosanto, I went did a seminar yeah. with him. He he's just so incredibly vibrant, still so passionate about yeah. the Philippines. And my wife's half Filipino herself. Um, but again, you know, he's he's older now, obviously in high demand. But again, I believe that one day we'll sit across from each other and do a do an interview too because his story is yeah. so powerful and needs to be told i think i think you'll get i think you'll get him he's exact he's very accessible brilliant <clears throat> a guy called rick young would be really interesting for you to talk to as well rick young is the scottish martial artist he's a phenomenal martial artist but he's down in the santo's top student oh brilliant so maybe if you access rick and do an interview with rick and if he asks you where the recommendation come from I'm not in contact with him at the moment. I haven't been in contact with him for a while, but he was an international level boxer, international level judoka, world champion Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, one of the leading lights of JKD in the world. Um, when I first met him, he was a postman, um, the most dangerous postman I ever met. <laughs> he's, a, he's a wonderful martial artist, full of integrity, full of congruence. I think he would be a really good interview for you. Um, and once you've interviewed him, ask him to introduce you to Dan, to say you'd love to speak with Dan. Um, uh, I did some teaching. Not, I never taught Dan in the Santo, but <clears throat> Rick and Rick had a seminar with Dan on, and they invited me and Peter Considine to come and teach for them as well. I found him very inspiring as well, the same as you. But yeah, someone like Rick Young would be would be great for you to talk to. Excellent. He's not very he's not very well known outside of the martial arts, but he's a strong voice. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It doesn't matter about fame or platform. You know, it's, it's the people. And it sounds yeah. like, and Jeet Kune Do, you know, that's what I did. I, I had the Wing Chun dummy. I had no idea how to use it, but I had the books. <laughs> I was a complete Bruce nut when I was young. And, um, yeah, but, but sadly, there was just no one teaching Jeet Kune Do around 
bathing. Well, have, a look at, have a look at Rick. Um, and Rick's, Rick is connected to the whole network of uh, JKD folk as well. But he's probably one of the, he's, I would say he's one of the most impressive martial artists I've ever, ever met. He really is. And he's, he's um, uncannily kind and gentle. He's so gentle, but he's, I took private lessons off him when I started to do grappling. He did, he used to come and stop at my house and he did some private lessons for me and he's, he's just a really powerful martial artist. So I would really recommend him and he would open lots of doors to other people, I think. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much. So then the very last question before we make sure people know where to find you online. What do you do to decompress when you're not writing? Um, I walk a lot. I, I do a lot of, uh, I do Qigong and yoga. Um, uh, and, I, you know, I'm quite isolated. I spend a lot of time just with my wife. I talk to my own kids a lot. So um, I'm really strict with my own Sabbath because I'm, there's a because I'm very prolific, so there's a tendency for me to want to work all the time, um, but I need to take time out. So I do a lot of that with walking. So walking and running are probably the main two things I do. I love reading, but all of my reading is study, so I can't say that's relaxing because when I'm reading, I'm studying. So I probably, if I was too isolated, I'd probably say walking. I really like long walks. Brilliant. All right. So then, for everyone listening, how do they find you online? How can they reach out to you? Um, the best place to find me is on Instagram. It's Jeff underscore Thompson um, underscore official. I think you've got the address, James, because that's how we connected, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And I'll put it on yes, the, so the webpage for this episode. That's the only place people can get hold of me. That's that's the only presence I've on the internet. So I'm, uh, my, because, of the, because of the nature of my life now and because of what I'm studying and what I'm doing, um, I'm not really in the public eye. I'm, I'm back in the world a little bit because um, I promised the publishers I would promote these books, and um, and I want to put this, I want to put the stuff out there as well because I'm keen to share, I'm keen to learn. Um, so I'm not really available many places. So that's that's probably the best place to go. Well, it's probably the only place to go. Brilliant. Well, Jeff, I just want to say thank you so much. The the courage and transparency that you bring to your story is, you know is is incredible and it's what needs to be heard you know and and to have a man who when i first was introduced to you was this you know flat nose shaved head bouncer that was teaching <laughs> me the fence and you know ask a question before you punch him in the jaw and all this kind of stuff yeah, yeah. And, and you know to to have had this this um you know emotional journey that you've been through spiritual journey um and to 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 speak over two hours telling that story i think is is incredible so all i can say is thank you so so much for trusting me and and coming on the podcast oh thanks james that's very kind of you to say now as soon as i looked at your stuff i just thought oh this guy's amazing i loved it i love the way you interview um there's there's uh, there's a great presence about you so and the, i listened to some of your interviews and it's just great the stuff you're putting out there is um you know, it's going to act as an intercessor, an, in, an intercessor for people that really need it. So it's, uh, it was my privilege, it really was. Mm-hmm.